On the Empire Podcast this week, he was the boy who lived, he fought the women in black, and now he's killing your darlings. It's Daniel Radcliffe. We also spoke to a man who's won an election, wrangled the descendants, and told us all about Schmidt as he heads to Nebraska, and that's Alexander Payne. And we'll be discussing uh, both films, plus this week's other new releases, including Frozen and Old Boy, on the only movie podcast that came to work this morning in a barrel. Hello, Pod. I'm Helen O'Hara, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Joining me this week are the three Empire writers that my team of ninjas managed to capture last night. First up is our podcast editor, the man with the biggest collection of Christmas jumpers this side of Bill Cosby. It's Ali Plum. Hello. Hello. I have eight Christmas jumpers that are on rotation for the next three to four weeks. So, yes. The one you're wearing at the moment is by far and away my favourite. Just to be clear, because this is radio and they can't see, uh, this one says, now I have a machine gun, ho, 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 and has a, a, an array of delightful sort of icons from Die Hard. It has the Nakatomi logo on it, but my favourite bit is on the back is the image of a, of a Beretta Christmas taped to his, uh, to his shoulders. Which is, yeah. Uh, There's also a very tiny uh, terrorist uh, being thrown out of a window and onto a car. Oh, which you yeah. can only just see, says Aww. LAPD. That's good. That's good. That's I like lovely. it. Well, you've heard him already. Uh, he's someone who sees an advent calendar as a personal challenge and who has so far polished off three. It's James Dyer. It's true. It's true. Mm-hmm. I, I think if you wait until December to eat the whole advent calendar, that's more or less acceptable. Unfortunately, one of them was the Lego advent calendar, <laughs> which may cause profound The red ones do stick in your teeth, I'll be honest with you. And finally, uh, it's a man who, when asked to draw up his Christmas list, asked Santa for white is the warmest colour and red is the warmest colour. It's Phil DeSemlin. Well, you haven't mentioned the name of the director. That That's because I can't pronounce it. <laughs> uh, hello. Do you want to give it a hello. go, Phil? How do you pronounce it? Abtalif Kasheshi. Okay. Kashish. Wow. I could have sworn it was Kashish. 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 Remind me with hashish. Kashish. Either way, you know, I'm convinced by your confidence and believe you totally. So no, good. I'm wrong. <laughs> I wanted to shout out to a lady called Emma Fivey, who's been in touch on Twitter to explain that she, that the Empire podcast kept her going during her work on the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. But oh, really? she's subsequently not been able to listen to it because she's having to listen to other nerdy film podcasts to prepare for more film festival fun. At which point I explained that we would cry if she didn't continue to listen to our podcast and she has then subsequently promised to continue to listen to the podcast. Okay. So she's she's maintaining that we do not do enough to prepare her for fringe fun at the festival. Yeah. Surely, surely you feel <laughs> single-handedly pro- I like to do provide my enough... Uh, I try my best. Emma, I will try harder. Hello, Emma. Okay. Uh, well, all week people have been lobbing questions at us like they're, they're a mob and we're Frankenstein. So let's start with this. Uh, with a new daughter being born a couple of weeks ago and a three-year-old girl, I need to find movies with strong female characters for us to watch. Can you help? I'm looking at you, Helen O'Hara. Uh, Star Wars, the classic trilogy, Princess Bride and Tangled are all favourites around here, says Warren from Belfast. Congratulations, Hello. I think, first. Yes. Congratulations. Well done. A newborn and a three-year-old. Yes. Aliens uh, <laughs> and Alien. Mm. Just to start with, mm. I don't think she's ready for Alien Three. Point no. of order. Point of order. No one's ready for Alien Three. But what I would say is, Aliens is the only true answer because uh, Alien, I think, it becomes anti-feminist when you see her wearing those micro pants at the end. I think that that's a little unnecessary. We had a discussion yesterday, James, that what you wear does not determine how much of a feminist. Unless you are. Ridley Scott's making you wear them. Well, a little and bit. And dance for him while singing Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm just saying. Would it be special edition for his special edition? Oh, good, good. Like yes. it. Yes. Well, Aliens. No, I, to be honest, I've gone. I've vacillated backwards and forwards on this particular issue on this podcast, but mm. I'm going to go theatrical cut today. Wow. Yeah. Wow, you're like the frog conductor in his milkshakes. You change yeah. a lot. That's true. And we talk about this every week. And we do. I'm going to say Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. 
right. Again, <laughs> she, she's a strong female character. <laughs> she is. She is. You're right. A physically strong character who is also female. Um, again, they're a newborn and a three-year-old. So I wonder if we could maybe bring the age range down just no, a little bit. No, that's fair. I'd say the films of Cynthia Rothrock, starting with China O'Brien, one through three. Okay. Well, he asked me, so I'm going to make some suggestions at this point. I would say any and all Miyazaki. Um, if you think about the films of Studio Ghibli and Miyazaki in particular, generally speaking, they have a female protagonist, and generally speaking, she is an interesting um, and and fully rounded one. And obviously, that's actually appropriate for the age of your kids, so that's a bonus. Starting obviously with Grave of the Fireflies. Okay, Grave of the Fireflies maybe not at three. Um, scarred for life. Uh, come on, any of us who watch Watership Down as children remember how. Oh. Oh, that can be. Um, so yeah, I would start with stuff like that. I think you're doing really well with Princess Bride and Tangled, which are fantastic. Um, I would personally recommend. Well, I actually quite like a lot of the Disney's. I know there's the whole thing about them being princessy, which is annoying and ridiculous. Brave, but stuff like Brave is quite good. Um, and they at least do have female characters. Some of the recent Disney movies, and we're going to talk about this in a bit, have annoyed me by trying to hide the fact that they have female leads, and at least the classic ones admitted to it. Films that made me, that I think have really strong female characters, and that made me wish I had a daughter so I could sit with her immediately and, and huh. show her this and say, this is what you want to be. They're a little bit old for your girls, but I would genuinely recommend The Contender, the Joan Allen film. It's good. Which is good. A, a brilliant example of a strong woman, and not the cliched strong female character, but a, a, but a genuinely strong strong woman. I'd also recommend the documentary Shut Up and Sing, which is about the Dixie Chicks and basically what happened to them after they made some comments critical of President Bush and basically the entire world seemed to turn against them and they just kind of got through that and it is absolutely fantastic. So those are generally the two films that most in all the world have made me want a daughter so I can just go, yes, do that. I would say you can't go wrong with any of Jim Cameron's films. Yes, he always have, has really good female yeah, roles. He actually. prides himself on that, I think. I wouldn't necessarily recommend True Lies, though. <laughs> I like Jamie Lee Curtis in that, but maybe that's a, a sort of a second wave feminism kind of a thing. There's a scene in particular which makes me wonder. Really? Maybe not. Okay, third wave, fine, whatever. Third wave. I don't think we've reached the wave that the scene where she laps stripped our strips for uh, Arnie is. Oh, it's kind of funny though. Um, Whip It is also a good one for girl roles um, that, that This is, is not the uh, Huddersfield based documentary about dog racing It is not, no, it's two different words It's no, about roller derby and, and roller derby is a, is a brilliant, brilliant sport and that's a really good film What so. are your thoughts on Labyrinth and also Mulan in this uh, category? Uh, yeah, like them both um, I wouldn't have said that, I don't feel like they're particularly sort of strong female role models I just feel like they're good female roles You, you know, know Ali? You remind me of the babe. What babe? The babe with the power. What power? The power of voodoo. Who do? You do. Remind me of the babe? That's right. Can I get a word? Word! <laughs> <laughs> okay, what? next question. <laughs> I had a couple. Oh, yes. Um, the trouble is that a lot of these films are quite scary. I was thinking of Coraline. Um, I also loved a film that may be referenced later on in this podcast because it's a bit of a touch point for one of the films that's out this week. Um, Peter Bogdanovich's Paper Moon, which has a great role um, played by Tatum O'Neill. Um, if you haven't seen that film, that's homework. Um, she's a young kid, but she's very streetwise and she's very funny. So uh, I would recommend that one, definitely. She was one of the youngest ever Oscar nominees for that, wasn't she? That's right, she All was. Right. Well done. OK, uh, next question time. Uh, I recently saw an advanced screening of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. I had seen a couple of trailers beforehand and wasn't particularly optimistic prior to watching it, but was very pleasantly surprised by an uplifting and enjoyable film. 
What films have you seen that you were dreading or not expecting much from that turned out completely different from your expectations? And that comes from Larry Ward. You'll echo what I'm about to say, but Pitch Perfect I wasn't expecting a huge amount from. I just thought, is this a Glee thing? Are we doing Glee now? Glee the movie? Is this it? Are, are they doing a backdoor Glee? And it was uh, within the first five minutes you see someone vomit their guts out all over an audience and you think, this isn't Glee. No, it isn't. It was Aka Spectacular. It is a good point that sometimes it's the marketing that kind of creates a misrepresentation and um, diminishes expectations. And that's certainly true of Enough Said, which I think was one of the, the, the best films that I saw this year. And uh, it's not particularly inspired in terms of the way it was marketed, but it was really, really good. So uh, that's certainly one. Um, there's been a bunch. I mean, there's a lot, you know, expectation is, is, a, is a key factor here. Like when we went to see Star Trek, the first Star Trek, I don't think anyone expected to be, it to be as good as it was. No, absolutely not. I did. You did, of course, because... You held the faith. You were a massive yes. trekker, torch holder. It was awesome. I'm, I'm going to say that uh, it, it, a film I saw this week that I can't talk about. Great. It's a good example. Because I signed an embargo. To be fair, I didn't read the embargo I signed, so I have no idea what it said, but I assume it means I probably can't talk about it today. But it's a film that's upcoming pretty soon, right? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I was expecting to be sort of left sort of desolate by it, but uh, but, uh, that was not the case. Well, we'll say no more about that. Um, Again, I've probably mentioned this on the podcast before. The one that always comes to mind for me for this is Seven, because the trailer for that is really cleverly cut and basically makes it look like a buddy cop comedy a slightly dark tinged one but essentially nothing a million miles from what you've seen before and then seven happens and i think that's brilliant i turned up at the screening of seven it was at the 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 galleria cinema in hatfield and i walked in and the overwhelming smell of vomit hit me as i entered the screen and that should have been the first sign (laughs) gross yeah i saw french kiss on a date in rome I love that. Really? Yeah. It's a terrible film. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I just had a great was time. Was it just with the fact that it you were on Kevin a day, Klein you were in Rome. doing French stuff? It might may have been the circumstances, yes. But um and Lone Ranger this year I had very low expectations and uh it, it met them. Mm. <laughs> and then a little bit more, so yeah. Yeah, sometimes if a really a really bad trailer can actually improve a film because you go in with such, you know, rock bottom hopes that you think this is brilliant. Because Chris isn't here, I feel obliged to, to fly the flag in this particular case. Equilibrium, which which I expected nothing from, and no one else has ever really witnessed anything from apart from me and Chris, but it was superb. I would put into this category, and I'm a big kind of murder mystery, uh, crime fiction type guy, but when I first saw Clue, I thought it was going to be pretty crap. How is this going to work? I had a couple of eccentric friends that said, you, you need to watch this, this is so up your alley. And you sit there, and it just kind of washes over you into you and you find yourself just kind of getting it and loving it uh, alternately there's a similar film called Murder by Death which has the most extraordinary cast Peter Sellers is in there uh, Peter Falk's in there it's just amazing just look it up at least that doesn't land and dates horribly but Clue was a real surprise uh, and my favourite ending is the final ending of the way they're ordered when you see all three back to back I'm going to mm. check that out who directed it do you remember I do not remember the director, but, and this is a very, very rare thing where I recommend anything off BuzzFeed, but the best BuzzFeed was an in-depth interview with the director and writer of Clue. Mm. Oh, I read that recently. It was very good. Other websites are available. Um, okay, uh, here's, a, here's a tough question that I predict is going to take us some time and may lead to fisticuffs. 
Can you help solve a debate that has been going on between my friends and I? Which is the better movie series, Die Hard or Lethal Weapon? I would have said Die Hard up to the point of the most recent films in the series, which I feel have damaged it. So now I feel it's the Lethal Weapon series. What do you think, asks Phil Thompson. Ali, you're wearing a Die Hard Christmas jumper right now. The answer is Die Hard is, is, is the better one. But I totally understand that point of view. And what will happen is that in a year's time or maybe a year and a half's time or whenever it is, you'll forget that a good day to Die Hard ever existed and you'll move on with your lives. But now you're still mourning. You're still dealing with that fallout. I was talking to James yesterday about the fact that that film cost about $90 million to make. It made $305 million worldwide. A good day to Die Hard was a hit came out in February, the dumping ground of most bad films, and lo and behold, it was a bad film, released on uh, February the 14th. This coming year, we'll get House of Cards. That's coming out on February 14th, so that'll be something better to look forward to in 2014. The thing is about Lethal Weapon is that come four, you have the traditional problem of too many people involved, there's too much in the cast, and dare I say it, things have happened to the people who were in that cast that maybe leave a bad taste in your mouth and you may not want to go back to. Die Hard first three are absolute crackers. Four I really enjoy as far as it goes, and five is just dreadful. Uh, but as a whole, it's got to be Die Hard. As much as I love the dialogue and Lethal Weapon, it's it, if any film series has a, a movie like Die Hard in it, the first one, that's enough to make it better than the rest. And part of me wants to agree with you, but unfortunately, Ali, you are incorrect. <gasps> um, and let me tell you why. Um, I agree with you that Die Hard is actually not only the best action film ever made, but one of the best films ever made. It's fucking phenomenal, if you'll pardon my language. Um, Die Hard 2, okay. Die Hard 3, a little bit better. Die Hard 4, an okay film, but not a Die Hard film. And Die Hard 5, which is excruciating. Now, mathematics, unfortunately, (laughs) plays a part in this. Because what you have is one great Die Hard film, a good Die Hard film, an average Die Hard film, a very average Die Hard film and a dreadful excuse for a Die Hard film. Whereas, if we look at Lethal Weapon, we have an excellent Lethal Weapon, an even more excellent Lethal Weapon, a good Lethal Weapon, and then a meh Lethal Weapon. So what I what I will do here is I will, I will take you to the Empire Star ratings. So, are you ready? <laughs> Die Hard 1 was a five-star masterpiece. Die Hard 2, three stars. Die Hard 3, three stars. Die Hard 4, Three stars. Ooh. Die Hard 5, two stars for a grand running average of 3.2 Empire stars. Yeah? Okay. Lethal Weapon. Lethal Weapon 1 is four stars. Lethal Weapon 2 is four stars. Should have been five. Lethal Weapon 3 is three stars. And Lethal Weapon 4 is three stars for a running total average of 3.5 stars. Ah, oh, well. Wow. The superior franchise by 0.2 of a star but if you take out the last Die Hard film which is do you not know how averages work Phil pointless <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, vaguely <laughs> it, it, it accommodates for the fact that there's one more film there's it's fine. too many I, Die Hard films I feel obliged to say that star ratings when you compare them in this way don't work <laughs> no. star ratings only apply to the review that they're attached to and that's what they are that's how star ratings work it is so much fun doing what James just did, and I do agree with him for the most part. <laughs> but you cannot go. Well, that's a three star, and that's a four star, so that's better. You know. Honestly, I think I think it's it's hard to. Com- I think the only single Lethal Weapon film that's better than the equivalent Die Hard film is the second one. Yeah, well, yes, than the equivalent, yes, but then that's also marrying. I would say Die Hard is better than all the Lethal Weapon films put Hang on. together. The fourth Le- Lethal Weapon, I actually have a lot a big soft spot for, and I would say it's better. Than it's the better than Die, Die Hard, Hard. Four. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
You think? Oh, yeah. God, yes. I don't think it's yeah. But I think it's a great. Although, deal, although I will say you'll want to watch the American Cut because the BBC did a proper number on that film, and uh, when it was released in the UK to get that rating, it got savaged. And this is one of the unfortunate things. Um, Lethal Weapon is an interesting sign of the times because Lethal Weapon One is a hard eighteen, very violent action film. Uh, Lethal Weapon Two is also quite a violent action mm. film, but has a lot of comedy on it in it. And then obviously three and four are essentially action comedies. Um, I, I I think two is the best. If we're talking lethal weapons, I think two is the best. I think it really just so many great lines from that. I mean, we quote it. Well, me and Chris quote it yeah. endlessly. I mean, I was going to say, do you do you mostly love it just because you enjoy doing your Joss Ackland impression? You Ricks, you Martin Ricks. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's a yes. <laughs> no, but also, I, I, do your Joss Ackland impression? No. <laughs> Diplomatic immunity. No, seriously. Uh, no. Do okay. No. <laughs> No, no, I'm not, I'm not. Uh, I genuinely, you were saying like we could do this all day, but the other thing is that I would say, just to defend Die Hard a little bit more, is that they, for the first three, stay too true to themselves. Die Hard movies, Die Hard, Die Hard, Die Hard, not Die Hard, definitely not Die Hard. Lethal Weapon goes, Lethal Weapon, Lethal Weapon, not really a Lethal Weapon movie, not really a Lethal Weapon movie. One thing I will say in defense of Lethal Weapon is it does give us Loaded Weapon, which, again, I have a soft score <laughs> for. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, so the conclusion is... Yep. Die Weapon. Die Weapon. Die, die weapon. weapon. There's going to be... Lethal Hard. Let's revisit this when the next Die Hard film's out and watch your grade point average plummet. I was yeah, about to say, yeah. See, yeah. Lethal Weapon quit while it was just slightly behind. And Die Hard <laughs> hasn't really learned that lesson. <laughs> yeah, okay, so we're calling that... I'm sorry, we're gonna, we're totally calling that a, a draw, I guess. I don't know. Take what, from that what you will. Okay, one more question. Uh, this is from... Uh, Casey in Albuquerque again who sent us so many questions last week thank you for that Uh, with the Avengers Age of Ultron looming on the horizon of the Marvel Cinematic Universe what are your favourite examples of artificial intelligence evil or otherwise in film and he says love the podcast keep up the great work oh thank you this will all end in tears (laughs) (laughs) but tell us what you really think Marvin uh um no uh, yeah, Marvin. Marvin's my favourite by a long way. I love the Alan Rickman version, as we've been talking about Die Hard, and I love the original, which you also see, of course, in the movie. You think it's going to be subtly introduced when they're queuing up uh, to get their you know, papers stamped, but then you see it again, the old-school Marvin from the TV show, and it's kind of shoved in your face, and you go, oh, where's the subtlety? Uh, or the humanity, now I think about it. Uh, Iron Giant, as voiced by... Yes. Vin Diesel. Uh, I'm excited to hear him do his best tree in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Also, I would put in uh, Gertie from Moon. And Moon, again, going back to the first question, is one of those movies which I wasn't like holding out for an amazing film when I first saw it, but I was very, very impressed. And uh, I thought that was a no small part because of Kevin Spacey's work in that. I would also say Eva, but pronounced like a sheep would for some reason, uh, with Sigourney Weaver in Wally. I love Huey, Louie and Dewey from Silent Running. Silent Running's because uh, they're awesome. They're so cute. And also they can (laughs) play poker. And if you need, you know, a buddy in space, you want one that can play cards with you. Also, Yul Brenner as the gunslinger in Westworld, Mm. which is a film I particularly love. Uh, He's awesome. And uh, Bishop in Aliens, which I mostly say to curry favour with James. Bishop. God damn you. Yes. Just for the knife trick. I think Just for the knife trick. No, Bishop's great. Um... Weirdly, I didn't have none that. Robot from Robot and Frank, this year's Robot and Frank, oh, yeah. I thought was fantastic. Uh, 
the self-destruct gag alone is worth going to see that film for. Um, <laughs> I, I was surprised that wasn't on more people. In the current magazine, you can see everyone in the office's top ten, and I was surprised that Robert Frank wasn't. Mm. I was surprised that Robert Frank wasn't in more people's top. It was 10. only on mine, wasn't it? I actually forgot it came out this year. <laughs> it, for me, it came out on DVD so soon after it came out in the cinema that I was like, oh, that must have been from last year. But it mm, was no. this year, and if I'd remembered, it would have definitely been in my top ten. I really recommend it. It made the overall top fifty once we added everything up with um, everybody's votes. But yeah, it was. Uh, it should have been higher, I think, if it had been fresher in people's minds. Definitely. I'd also like to give an honourable mention to Bubo from Clash of the Titans. Mm-hmm. A little robotic owl. Oh yeah. Anyone? That was Anyone? Cute. No, just clockwork owl. Um, Johnny Five as well. Num- <laughs> number Johnny Five. Johnny Five needs um, input. But if I had to, my favourite AIs, unfortunately, are not from films. My favourite two are and always will be, I think, Glados from the Portal games, and first and foremost, Shodan from the System Shock games. Uh, which is just absolute genius. You have a type, James, I'll say that much. <laughs> <laughs> I date both of them. You do hear GLaDOS kind of, not really... In Pacific Rim. In Pacific Rim, mm. but she's not a character, it's just yeah. kind of an in-joke from mm. Guillermo. Uh, I would like to give a quick mention, a uh, quick shout-out, if you will, to uh, Daryl. Do you remember that from the 80s? That was amusing. It was an acronym, wasn't it? It was. I can't remember what it stood for. There was some kind of robot, robotic something life form. Youth life form? I don't know. Uh, Data in Star Trek, because th- he was in the Next Generation movie, so it kind of counts. Uh, we should probably mention Hal, although I wouldn't say he's my favourite, what with him being evil. And I am the fan of AI, the one you, solitary fan. You and fan. Ian Freer. Me and Ian Freer are the and fans Steven of Spielberg. AI. Yeah, um, and I think, honestly, I think that's an absolutely fantastic film. I, I genuinely think it's massively no, I, underrated. You know what? I completely agree with you, apart from on all the things you just said. That's very kind of you. You're referring to Teddy, right? I'm referring to basically uh, Teddy uh, and to all of them. Um, I actually, just to name drop here, I went to see Henry V last night, starring Gigolo Joe, a.k.a. Jude Law. So, um, you know, he was very good, actually. Jude Law, Henry V, who would have thought? And uh, and I think he's great in that film. I think it's Send a fantastic him to character. The flesh fair. I just yeah. love that, you know, the ultimate incarnation of male sexuality and the, and the super sexy robot has quite a receding mm. hairline going on there. You would have thought they would have tweaked that in uh, <coughs> Did either he, post or... Uh, some women oh, like that, okay. I guess. <laughs> Did he what? unleash the dogs of four? It's <laughs> <laughs> very good. It's not uh, terrible. Yeah. terrible. Bard humour. It was. Well done. Well done. Um, okay, it's time, I think, to leave the questions behind on that note. And I should also point out that the quote is actually, let slip the dogs of war, just, just saying. When Jude Law does it, he's unleashing Oh, it. fair enough. Yeah. Okay, we should probably drop that then. Sorry. Uh, it's time, I think, for our first interview. Alexander Payne became an indie darling with Citizen Ruth and broke through with Election, which marked him as one of the smartest and wittiest directors around. He followed that with the excellent and universally Oscar-nominated likes of Sideways, About Schmidt and The Descendants. And now he's back with Nebraska, another likely-to-be-Oscar-tipped tale. This one stars Bruce Dern as an elderly man who believes he's won the lottery and Will Forte as the son who agrees reluctantly to take him along to see if he's right. Phil and I went to speak to Payne when he came into town recently. Okay, well, welcome to the Empire Podcast. We're joined Thank today you. by Alexander Payne. Um, so, um, Nebraska, it's 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 a road movie. I mean, this seems to have been some somewhat of a kind of hallmark of your directorial career of late. What is it about the road movie that makes it so cinematic? Is there something that appeals to you particularly? I don't even like road movies all that much, and I find myself making them. This is my third or fourth one. I mean... There are obvious answers to your question. What makes it cinematic? Well, you yep. get the landscape and you get a sense of motion and travel and all that. But, you know, I can't stand shooting in cars. It's funny. I, I spoke to Steven Soderbergh and when he talked about retiring from filmmaking. And I said, what's the one thing you'll miss? And he said, shooting in cars. He'd miss it? 
No, sorry, oh, not the opposite. Miss. Not miss. Not yeah. miss. It's hellish. Is it hellish? It is uh, uh, because there are only so many places you can put the camera, so it's visually not terribly interesting. And okay, I'm still youngish and somewhat limber, so I can cram myself into the trunk together with the camera operator and the assistant cameraman. The sound man, mercifully, doesn't have to be there anymore. He can just plant a mic. But it's it's a little uncomfortable. So we don't, we're not seeing you doing a Fast and Furious movie in the future? Uh, no. Uh, but increasingly, as I've made these road movies, uh, the more I try to avoid getting into the car myself and just show drive-bys and then maybe... Uh, sprinkle the dialogue over the shot of the drive-by. You don't need to see them talking. Mm. You still know what's happening. That's a lot in The Descendants. The Descendants has a lot of, which is a road movie of sorts, but you see them walking or driving and then you hear the dialogue on top of the mm. yeah. top of the image. You mentioned around the time of you were promoting The Descendants that Nebraska was the project you were working <coughs> on next, but that was a working title at that point. And I wondered if, it, you, the way you were talking about it, it sounded like you had you were heading towards another title. What other options were in the kind I of- wanted to retitle it, but I never came up with anything better. And, and I didn't give it the title Nebraska originally. It's the, the screenwriter Bob Nelson did. Yeah. Uh, so I thought, eh, I don't know, maybe there's something better, but I couldn't think of anything better. Um, what is it? I mean, for people in the UK don't know a lot about the states. It, was it was part of it kind of, you know, bringing showing a little love to uh, to Nebraska itself? Or was it just trying to go home and just, I don't know, get to grips with the kind of fascination of that culture? I'm just always, it's, it's even more basic and disappointing than that. I'm always just so happy just to find a story or a script which can barely qualify as a movie because <laughs> I'm just so desperate to shoot. And screenplays, uh, for me, have been the part uh, which take the longest. So, and, uh, yeah, I mean, people are asking me, uh, was it really different for you to direct something you haven't written? And my answer is that I've written to date only out of desperation for never finding a, a, a script which I've wanted to make. Yeah, good to find this one then. Yeah, and I'm, I am happy shooting in Nebraska, to be sure. I'm happy shooting out of Nebraska. I was... Terribly happy making that wine movie in California and then that other movie in Hawaii. And then it's nice to come back and shoot in Nebraska. And not in Omaha, my, where I'm from, which I know best, but rather in the rural areas, which I do not know as well. Mm. Did, did you cast a lot of locals? Because it had a real feel of not being a Hollywood eyes, you know, I, I don't want to say sanitized, but maybe dieted version of, of kind of middle America. Well, I hope my other movies, too, don't have yeah. that typical uh you know sense of what we associate with hollywood casting uh made more beautiful or unreal in some way i aspired to a certain degree of reality but really in this one being from nebraska i felt and the casting director also from just across the river in iowa we wanted to get that that rural casting exactly right so the film is a marriage of Professional actors, seasoned professional actors, non-professional actors, <clears throat> people who have only been in, in uh, uh, lesser films or in community theater, and then with non-actors. Yeah. And casting, that casting period took uh, over a year, well over a year, especially yeah. to find the right non-actors. Yeah. Retired farmers, uh, people from that area, from rural Nebraska, whose faces and accents paint the picture accurately. Mm. I noticed the, the couple, um, 
I don't want to give anything away, but uh, the couple with the house in the country who they, they briefly have a conversation with, they had the same surname in real this life. This movie so has were... no spoilers in it, so <laughs> you're not giving, it's, you know, it's just a slice of life film. You're not going to give anything away. The Freudenbergs, the Freudenbergs. playing the Westendorfs. Yes, <laughs> retired German farmers in Nebraska. Yeah, they, so to find those retired farmers and others in the film too, the casting director and I advertised on rural radio in small town newspapers and targeting not the older farmers themselves, but rather their kids to put their parents on, you know, with their flip camera or on the iPhone, videotape them, email us the auditions. And it's kind of a fancy word for what we were, what we received. (laughs) And then a few sifted in over the months in which we were casting and then a a flew, a few flowed in and we sifted through them and met them and then found, found the ones that are appropriate for the film. Cool. Talking of casting, Bruce Dunn was the first name that you, that you pondered and then you went through a process and then came back to him. Why didn't you just cast him straight away? Because I didn't think that was doing due diligence. You never know. Yeah. Was there anyone else close in your mind? Or was no. It, no. The only others whom I would consider for that part are dead. Henry Fonda, around the time of On Golden Pond, would have been very good. Uh, Walter Brennan, before him, mm. would have been quite good. Had Warren Oates lived, <laughs> yeah. I thought he could be good. But that's about it. And how about Will Forte as well? Because he's best known for... MacGruber to a lot of people, certainly in this country, because you know we don't get Saturday Night Live. Uh, live. Was it MacGruber that clinched it? I've never seen MacGruber. Oh. He auditioned well. I never would have thought about him in a million years, but he auditioned well. Mm. I believed him, mm. and uh, he has a natural sweetness, which I thought appropriate for that character. You, this feels like such an <clears throat> Alexander Payne movie. It's almost strange to think that you didn't write it yourself, but it came about across your desk. I think it was like before Sideways, wasn't it? It's about eight or during, nine years during ago. Sideways. During Sideways. And I wondered if it, had been, it would have been a different kind of movie in tone if you'd made it then than now. I guess what I'm driving at is, you know, the parents, you know, your parents are getting older, well, our parents are getting older, and whether that kind of infu- informs the kind of emotional heft of the film. A little bit, and also the fact, too, that uh, by the time... <clears throat> excuse me, I shot exactly a year ago. We had gone through all that economic malaise and some of that shows up in the film and combined with the black and white, it becomes now a sort of depression era film. Uh, yeah, film is different anytime you make it from had you shot it any other time, but I can't say one is better or worse because you just don't know. Yeah, you said that. You... And also, but about the first part of your question, Martin Scorsese has never had screen credit in the writing of his films, but we consider his films personal. And you don't have to have written a script in order to make a film personal at all. No. I mean, think of how we look at uh, Raoul Walsh's films or Howard Hawks's films or John Ford's films. and They never wrote any of their uh, uh, screenplays, but based on what they chose and how they did them, they become personal. Hmm. I mean, I, I guess there's a certain Alexander Payne comic sensibility that's very unique to you that this film has in spades and it's in the writing. And I guess that's my point. It's just that it feels like, it, you know, that you laugh when you read it in a way that you... I did. And I did a rewrite right before shooting. So I added some, jo- <laughs> right. so I added some jokes and I wrote some things. I mean, I, all yeah. very respectful of the screenplay. I was uh, 
uh, inheriting, but uh, yeah, I did bevel its edges a bit to my will. Some of the funniest bits for me were, were June Squibb, who was just outrageous. And we, I don't think we get enough of that. We get, you know, nice little old ladies. And to see one who was just quite so forthright, I suppose, was a, was a really welcome change. Um, I don't know if I have a question there, basically. I mean, you, you obviously no, that's with fine, her before. No, that's fine, but she, she has a flashily written part. It's a she potentially scene-stealing part. Hmm. But we like delightful, outrageous older ladies. Think of Ruth Gordon in Harold and Maude or that rapping granny in the wedding singer yeah right <laughs> you mentioned uh Daniel Clove's uh Wilson is that a project that's still on the boil for you no it's definitely... no I've decided not to do it really why not oh I think that I Dan uh wrote a terrific adaptation of his graphic novel and I just changed I just want to do something really different and I don't know what it is so is your next project a little bit up in the air? Because I know earlier in the week you clarified about people have been reporting that the judge's will was... Yeah, which is a wonderful question. short story. Uh, and I have optioned the rights and I want to make that one day, but not necessarily next. For mm-hmm. some reason, it just came out this week that I had optioned it and suddenly I said, oh, that's my next film. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. No one asked yeah. me. Yeah. Finally, someone <laughs> asked me, is it true? And I said, no. I mean, <laughs> yes, but no. Yeah. But I don't know what it's going to be. I'm taking the year off, the rest of this year off just... Literally, to clean off my desk. Really? Why is it? Literally, from piles of unanswered correspondence and scraps of paper of ideas and notes, which I haven't recopied into my computer. And, you know, Mm. I need to just clean off my... I mean, I just made two films in a row, so I'm surrounded by piles of crap. I want to sort through them before moving on to the next thing. You promised us last time around on the press tour that you would be swinging from film to film like a monkey from branch to branch. Oh, and I yes, know that to, to break you. <laughs> That's the word. <laughs> you had your tongue in, in cheek there, I imagine, to a certain extent. But, you know, it's nice to see you because was, there was a gap between Sideways and The Descendants. Correct. It's nice to see you back so quickly. Thank you. Um, it's good to be back so quickly. The, the New Yorker, you know, the, the project that you mentioned, I just, it's fascinating looking at some of the films that have come out of New Yorker articles you know made a list of Brokeback Mountain The Hours Adaptation Boys Don't Cry In Cold Blood even Meet Me in St. Louis there's so many Meet Me in St. Louis apparently yeah that had it had its origins in in, I'm not sure if it was an article or or what but the idea kind of the germ of it came from New Yorker my goodness do you just um, see the ask do you get the New Yorker just flick through I do get the New Yorker I don't Funnily enough, I didn't read that short story originally. Someone who works in my little company read it <clears throat> and suggested it to me. And it's set in India, isn't it? So it is, but I wouldn't make it in India. I would set it elsewhere. What do I know from India? But the the germ of the story is such that it could be placed anywhere. Yeah, I was going to say, um, we, we thoroughly enjoyed your Oscar acceptance speech with those guys and and how you swerved a potential kind of scene stealing of your own you had Angelina Jolie giving <laughs> giving full leg and then you had those guys giving a kind of strange three amigos style man Parody. pose and yet you came through you dedicated the film to your mum who had demanded it I gather she you had. said yeah she because Javier it. Bardem had done it correct and did she say thank you and give you a big yeah, sort of <laughs> doesn't really work she demands it and then once she gets it not as you don't necessarily I've learned not to expect gratitude in life in general. I think you're much happier in life if you don't expect gratitude. 
It's sad philosophy in some ways, but probably a wise one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you've had to make this film in colour as well as black and white for, for foreign markets and, and all of the technicalities. Not foreign markets, very specific television, television markets, f- which uh, the studio insists that, you know, that I do. We haven't gotten to that point yet. Have you seen it in colour? I, I have. My question is, what does it feel like in colour? It's beautiful in colour. It's not as good a movie. It's not the same movie. I, would, I don't want anyone to see it in colour. But it's actually quite beautiful. Some shots are actually more beautiful in color than they came out in black and white. The color we gave it looks sort of like a 1971 film. And the skin tones are very warm and almost brownish. And uh, it's quite lovely. What it taught, what it served for me is, uh, because this film, Nebraska, was my first film shooting digitally. And so I'm just now learning what you can do with it and how infinitely malleable it is. And rather than just resist it, like I want to, and a lot of my filmmaking comrades are, oh, where's film? We want film. I want film. And of course, I still prefer film. Flicker, I contend, is always superior to glow in terms of the f- viewing experience. Uh, still, it taught me what I can do with... Uh, with color in future films. So I, I enjoyed okay. the process. Wow, so it was a learning process from a color point Yeah, but well. I don't want anyone to see it. <laughs> no. I'm Someone's happy I did it. it. Yeah. Someone's going to see you know, it. Yeah, like in, in Channel 4 more Moldova or uh, Chad Arte <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> so those few, those few people can get back to us, basically. And Chad <laughs> bloggers are going to be all bloggers, over this. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I wanted to just, to, before we have to wrap reasonably shortly, but I wanted to take you right back to your UCLA thesis film, The Passion of St. Martin, which... The Passion of Martin. Of Martin. Why did I say St. Martin? I'm thinking of Joan of Arc for some reason. Okay. The Passion of Martin, I apologize. Um, and, and I just wondered what, that, what it was like to kind of emerge from film school into the bright... Because you really did get plunged straight into the Hollywood bright lights, didn't you? You had the phone calls from agents, people trying to snap you up. Yeah, but it, it still took me five years to get a feature film off the ground. Yeah. I mean, I, I came out of film school with uh, the dream scenario of a film student, and I was naive enough to think I'd be shooting my first feature within a year. It was five years. Yes. So you'd preach patience for people listening who want to get into filmmaking. I don't preach it. Either they accept it or they're sunk. Things take a long time in film. Mm. I don't care how prodigious you are. It takes a while. Overnight successes usually take 10 years. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we hope to see you back in a long time before that. I like making them. It's a lot of fun. Thanks for the good discussion. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Who's jet-lagged? I like a jet-lagged interviewee. They're all (laughs) jet-lagged. Yeah, pretty much. Different degrees when, of jet lag. When they're talking to you, they, they, they always say, oh, by the way, I'm jet lagged. Yes. I've been in the country for six weeks. But, oh, I just can't shake it. <laughs> it's just he, was, he was re- rhapsodizing about, we got talking about um, Paper Moon, didn't we, Bogdanovich? We did, yeah. And uh, go back to my earlier homework. Have you done it yet, people? I'm, I'm about to. Any second now. Mm. Uh, but first, movie news. What have you got? Well, I, don't, I hate to open with a downer here, but of course, um, Paul Walker has passed away. Oh. Uh, in, in a car crash and it is very sad it's a real shame like mm. I interviewed him earlier this year and he was so charming and friendly and polite and totally engaged with me with all the questions I'm sure he's heard a thousand times before but I spent most of that interview just giggling and laughing because I'm somehow quite susceptible to charming men um, 
paging Dr. Freud. I don't know. It was it, he was he was so lovely. It's such a sad, sad story that that the way he went. Anyway, this of course means practicalities too. Uh, Fast and Furious Seven has officially been announced as being postponed. It was originally earmarked for a summer 2014 release. Uh, there is no official release date now anymore. Uh, Universal have decided, uh, and I agree with them entirely. I think that's just the right thing to do to say, right for the foreseeable future, we are not working on this film. Worth pointing out here at this point for anyone who read about this uh, rather tragic accident in the newspapers who utterly misrepresented the facts of what happened and decided, oh, a guy who was in the Fast and Furious died in a car crash, let's make out like he was street racing, when in fact he was the passenger in a car and had nothing to do with it. Um, it was a very tragic, uh, very tragic accident, and there was I, I, I don't do not believe there was fault uh, assigned. It was just um, one of those things. Coming back from a charity event. Well, exactly, anyway. he was coming back from a charity event. He was not in any way endangering the lives of people. Absolutely, and I think that that's definitely worth making clear. It's a it's a sad day for you know for obviously his family and friends first and foremost. I mean, and also you know the Fast and Furious films they talk incessantly on screen about being a family, and it's it's, it's kind of a thread going through the films that Dominic Toretto and mm. um, and Brian feel themselves like brothers and and you know uh, and act that way, and and they they seem to feel like that offset as well, and the, the, the actors uh, reflect that as well. So it is a really tough time for all of them. But come on, seriously, we this is very, very sad. There must be happier news out there. This depends on whether you like the in-between is my next one. <laughs> uh, which uh, is, you know, they swore blind they weren't going to do a sequel. They swore blind they weren't going to do a sequel. They said, no, 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 we've made our money. Yeah, but then they made like £60 million in the UK alone. So They made a lot of dollar, dollar, dollar. Uh, so they have now uh, decided to do a sequel and it is heading to Australia, mate. So that's great for Australia, I'm guessing. And uh, it's starting shooting now. There are precious few other details, but you can bet there'll be some dodgy Aussie accents from the boys and uh, a whole new vocabulary of uh, very offensive ways of saying uh, rather inappropriate things. Mm. Wow. I don't know how I feel about that. I do. (laughs) How do you feel? Tell us. I feel (laughs) mediocre. (laughs) Mediocre to average about that news. Although Australia probably is the right place for them to go, I guess. Are you not a fan of... It's far of, away from here. You're not a fan of the in-betweeners? I'm not. I like them in their sort of half-hour bite-size episodes. But in the film version, I know I'm in a bit of a minority. I thought it was tremendously unfunny. Uh, yeah, I, do so, you know what? Yeah. £58 million pounds worth of tickets. <laughs> yeah. I disagree with you. <laughs> That's true. Mm. I'm, I'm not a huge fan. I enjoy the in-betweeners-ish. I prefer Fresh Meat, actually, which was Joe Thomas's follow-up uh, mm. comedy, which is the university's so spiritual successor at university. I find that a lot funnier. Yes, I prefer fresh meat as well. But, I mean, it made so much money, so why not, I suppose? Uh, just to mix it up, I never actually saw the TV show, um, clearly because I'm a bad person. Um, but I actually quite enjoyed the film, much more than I was expecting to. I thought I'd hate it. Um, but it was all right. So, I'm, you know, I'm quite, I'm quite intrigued by this. I did laugh, so if, if they can keep the laughs coming, I think they'll do okay. You probably should have mentioned that in our, in our earlier Q&A session. I probably could. I apologise to you, Phil. Mm. I apologise. Apology accepted. Thank you. Born is back. Born is coming in 2000. It's every film's been released in 2015, and the new Born, the legacy of Born, legacy, Born again, Born free. <laughs> Who knows what it's going to be called? And I actually, we had Tony Gilroy um, come into the podcast a while back, and if you listen to that, he talks about how he felt that although he's not involved, there was no way they could continue to use the Born name in the next of the Born sequel, sequel, sequels. Sure. Sequels. So what, this would be the cross conspiracy the or something? The cross, yeah. I, who knows? 
can't can't they just call it the Born Legacy two then subtitle? Then the subtitle. I guess that's what they'll do. I mean, I I actually asked Frank Marshall, the producer, this, and he said it's a good question, and they're thinking about it. They're trying to figure it out. But the the news here really is that it has got a release date, August fourteenth, two thousand fifteen. Um, they say that the script isn't finished yet. There's no title. Um, obviously, Jeremy so, so Renner is start- coming back. So they're getting started tomorrow. So it's on. Yeah, it's basically starting tomorrow. It's interesting. In Brisbane with the in between. We have an inside track on that, don't we? Because a certain member who shall remain nameless of the Empire team was recently on a flight back. I can't remember. Was back from or to Los Angeles with Justin Lin, upon which he was reading the script, mm. the newborn film, Born Again. Uh, the title of which was, was, I believe, Bourneville. So uh, <laughs> that, that was unexpected. Somebody was suggesting on Twitter. I can't remember. Apologise. I can't remember who it was, but they should, that it should start in Bournemouth. But the boat from the second from the last film should just pull into Bournemouth. And then I in Bournemouth, eating in- Bourneville, watching Bourne Free, and just <laughs> pun the way through the whole ninety minutes. Yes, I'm in favour of this. So on board. Uh, it's a, it's a crowded release schedule just about then. What's it going to be up against? It's going to be up against uh, well, the Smurfs three. I, I fancy Bourne's chances. I'll be honest. Um, Ant Man was on for there. Did it move? It's very small. You probably wouldn't tell. Yeah, it's probably right. That no, should be fine then. It'd be all right. I mean, I think we were all surprised because I don't think anyone was blown away by that film particularly. It had to do a lot of work, didn't it, to establish this new world mm. and get the franchise moving again. Not entirely successfully, I don't think. But it did okay at the box office. So, And Universal obviously believe the golden compass. Go- <laughs> the golden <laughs> goose. The golden... The best thing that could possibly happen is Matt Damon obviously returning uh, at some point in the future. And I guess maybe they're holding out for that. Honestly, let's hope he doesn't. Just for the simple reason that my problem with The Bourne Legacy is it did that, that thing that that films really have no business doing which is it undermined the entire series to date with all these viraling out and pills mm. and nonsense midichlorians I think they exactly were it pulled a midichlorian slash Highlander to the quickening on the Bourne franchise and it's just a bit upsetting what's its grade point average <laughs> to- <laughs> I will work that out for you by next week there's only four films how long could it take what is it? It isn't it like five five and five and then what was it three, three. It was, I think it was five four five and f- four maybe no no three, three got five because I gave it five okay then it was four five and five maybe I think it was four five five two four five five two someone right someone do maths now quick quick maths isn't, isn't that some kind of football formation let's move on to the next story and you figure it out and then no. I'll shout it out and while I'm doing the next moment. story so you'll have to work it out while I'm talking um, Ali stole my thunder on this because mine was going to be two date related television stories one Bring of it. which being the House of Cards returns to uh, to Netflix on the 14th of February which of we're film journalists so we wouldn't know this but apparently it's Valentine's Day um, and a month later in American cinemas, the Veronica Mars movie will be making its triumphant debut, um, which is quite interesting. I was on set of Veronica Mars, and at the time, I don't think... I think that the strategy was it was going to have a limited theatrical release sort of backed up by sort of digital downloads and, and, and DVD stuff, but they've gone for a slightly broader theatrical run, which shows a certain amount of confidence in a film that's, uh, you know, you would argue quite niche as a mm. Kickstarter project. Um, still no news on what's happening with it in the UK. I'm quite interested, in fact, I was discussing this with the unit publicist last night, um, I'm quite interested to hear whether it's going to get a theatrical release in the UK. I hope it does. I'm very excited to see it. Um, we shall see. I'm going to set up a Kickstarter project to pay for my ticket to go and see it. Good. Everyone that contributes gets one cola bottle. That's very nice. No, yeah. to be clear, is that a bottle of cola or do you mean one of the penny chews? Well, that's that's, that's penny a small chew. print though, isn't it? I mean, that's yeah, what you're doing. Yeah, They're yeah. fizzy cherry ones. I mean. See my webpage. We've got, a, we've got a number. We have a number for the Bourne it's an, average. An average of four stars is what we're saying. It's very neat, isn't it? It is very so neat. So Bourne wins. Four point, did we round this up or down? Or was that actually... Well, yeah, two fives. 
and then the four Which and the two, and then that you coagulate, and then you've got to realign the positron flow, and then four. Right. Okay. Happy days. Wow. So that was four. Really good Mathematicians, news. I know I probably got that wrong. <laughs> I don't think so. Is that all the news? That's all the news. Is well, print. hang on a second here. I'd say I have a story to add to this pile. Um, oh. And that is the news about Superman versus Batman, Batman versus Superman, or whatever the heck we're calling the sequel to Man of Steel. Helen, no one's going to be interested in that. Well, I just, I, I like to hope that somebody will be, um, because the news came today that Wonder Woman is going to be joining the lineup. Wonder Woman on screen at last, people. This is exciting. Uh, apparently, Gal Gadot, uh, best known from Fast and Furious Five and Six, um, although she also appeared in Date Night and Night and Day will be playing Diana Prince, a.k.a. Wonder Woman. Assuming she is known as Diana Prince, we don't know yet. We don't really know much. But Zack Snyder has said he's very excited about it. Is this a secret Justice League movie? That And that's why they haven't announced the name yet. Can we soon expect to hear from Green Arrow, Green Lantern, Flash and Martian Manhunter as well? How are they going to introduce all of these characters and do them a decent job in terms of screen time? What will she have to do? On screen, will she get to start stuff properly? And does anyone care? Oh, come on, we can't be that cynical. I think people care about Wonder Woman being on the big screen. Do you know what? We talked about this in the office. We should mention she's going to be in the Lego movie already. Kobe Smulders is technically the first big screen Wonder Woman. Go ahead. Uh, Do you know what? Uh, Having having witnessed David E. Kelly's interesting. Television <laughs> pilot, uh, which Adrian Pilecki has never really recovered from. Um, I do not want to see Wonder Woman at all. Uh, at all. Also, my worry with this is that uh, we don't need a Batman backstory because I think Christopher Nolan's stuff is very fresh in our minds. We've seen uh, Superman's uh, new backstory. My worry is you get into a Spider-Man 3 situation where yeah. you're just chucking people at the screen. You're not giving any of them the the you know the time they need to to exist as characters. You're not giving them backstory. You know, I think, and I'm not a huge Wonder Woman fan, um, despite the pants. Um, I think that that is a character that needs explaining. I think it needs proper backstory, and I think you can't just drop someone like that in and just run with it. Here's my thinking, right? And I agree with a lot of that. I do. Um, I think for a start, you you are going to have a little bit of character building with Batman just because you've got a new Batman and you've got to explain exactly sort of how he fits into this world, to this Superman world. So there's a little bit of background even to be done there. We've also presumably got a big new, uh, a new big bad to explain as well, whether that's Lex Luthor or some kind of, you know, conglomeration of supervillains working together. We don't know, but there's going to be a bit of setup there. Um, and there have also been rumours already of Nightwing and all sorts. So there's going to be some setup of any of those peripheral characters. And Wonder Woman, you're right, has this crazy backstory, which even toned down by a lot is still a bit crazy. Even if it turns out she came out of one of the pods in the spaceship, we saw that empty pod. Mm in the Kryptonian ship maybe I mean she shouldn't be from Krypton that would be outrageous but if she was from some other place I don't know it would be stupid but they might try and do something like that I don't know I just I'm really excited to see Wonder Woman I don't want to see it you know messed up but on the other hand you know you've got to trust and hope that they're not going to mess it up do a Wonder Woman movie do one and then roll out a Justice League movie. You know, do these characters justice. I think with Batman, you may be right, they may try and fit him into this world. I would argue the Man of Steel world isn't vastly dissimilar to Nolan's No, but world. You, I'm not saying you've um, got a lot of heavy lifting to do there, but you've got a wee but bit. But might, you know I mean? might they not just assume that people will join the dots between those two franchises and just carry that over to an extent? To an extent, I think they will. But I think you've just because it's a new guy, you've at least got to have a scene or two explaining 
what stage this guy's at. Is Explaining. this is this literally Christian Bale's Batman? Or whether Daredevil just this... <laughs> got his eyesight back and then became Batman. Yes. Right, okay. okay. Um, uh, and I would also say, I think, you know, you need to have Wonder Woman using her powers properly. I think there's been a tendency... One guy I was talking to on Twitter was suggesting that they basically set her up as more or less just a love interest in this movie yeah. and have her really only do, only showing any powers in the third act or possibly in a, in a future JLA movie. My problem with that is she's as strong as frickin' Superman. She should be doing stuff. Perhaps she's there simply to answer the question posed uh, by Jason Lee in the movie Morat. Oh. I want to engage with that. <laughs> I, I, know too, I know you too well to go further down that road. It's a Kevin Smith film. I think we all know where this is going. Big question. Is Warren from Belfast and his young brood going to be satisfied <laughs> with this screen incarnation? The long-awaited. I, I really hope so. I mean, I, you know, Gal Gadot wouldn't have been my first choice. That was Gina Carano, who I think is basically Wonder Woman in real life. But at the same time, I don't know her well enough to say that you know she won't do a fantastic job. She hopefully she will. I'm sure she's going to be working insanely hard to make sure that she does. Um, and I think that there's you know there's a lot of potential here. If you know that everyone's been saying recently, the Hunger Games proves that you know a. a, a big action franchise led by a woman can be an enormous success and everybody else in the world has gone duh but you know it, it has been something that's been questioned by studio logic that's kind of shown it to be the case my only worry is if they put wonder woman in this movie and this movie isn't good i don't want wonder woman to get blamed for it so hopefully they don't do that i think they're once bitten twice shy uh, when it comes to doing these little movies they 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 want to do their own marvel cinematic universe mm. uh, obviously DC and then Green Lantern which should have worked I really love Ryan Reynolds and the character of Green Lantern has so much potential but it just didn't work and I think they're going right well that didn't work and we can't justifiably toss another 200 million at one and the interesting thing is there I mean because yes female led f- superhero movies have not worked historically but recently like war- uh, but recently Marvel's been taking a certain amount of flack for having a raccoon lead a film mm-hmm. before a, a woman does. Do you know what I mean? And I think if DC are really worried that Marvel's kind of overtaking them and kind of, you know, ruling the cinematic universe, surely the way to show them who's boss would have been a Wonder, Wonder Woman standalone. Mm. Steal that thunder, you know? Ride, anyway, ride the invisible plane. I think it's a good question. Is Does this speak, does this whole production as it's coming together speak of confidence or an insecurity in... In uh, in this DC world, because I wonder if Marvel wouldn't have handled it quite differently, potentially. But then I feel like Marvel, you know, Marvel were lucky because they got Tony Stark to kind of fuel their their expansion, and he's a character that you know probably is more cinematic than anyone DC have. You know what? It's it's interesting you say that. I do think that the, the DC sort of Warner's approach to DC on screen does lack the confidence that Marvel have. I mean, theirs is a military incursion on all fronts. It's air, land, sea, combined arms, special forces. And then, you know, the DC offensive seems to be a slightly apologetic sort of arrow, sort of boop. Um, You know, the Dark Knight films worked really, really well and Man of Steel has made enough money that, you know, everyone's happy with it. But, you know, Green Lantern and and, and now this, it feels that if you're going to do it, do it big. As the Americans would say, go big or go home. Indeed so. But let's hope that's what they're doing. Uh, we don't know enough to judge yet, and, and I, for one, will be hoping for an awesome Wonder Woman on screen. So, fingers crossed for Gal Gadot. There's a story on the website if you want to you know, leave us your thoughts on, on her casting and the appearance of Wonder Woman in the film. Please do. We'd be glad for, to hear from you. Okay, as well as that Wonder Woman news, uh, other superhero news has arrived. In fact, two big pieces of superhero news have arrived. 
One comes in the form of the new Amazing Spider-Man 2 trailer, which is notable for, well, kind of having more villains than we expected, really. Indeed. We saw, you see in a brief moment during the trailer, you see somebody walking through Oscorp's kind of underground lair, or something along those lines, something Oscorpy, which, as you may or may not know, is the big business bad, the big science corporation that uh, that is kind of looming over this new version of the Spider-Man universe. And we see a kind of mechanical attachment for Doc Ock's arms and also the vulture's wings. So if you're a big Marvel fan and you know your Spider-Man, that is a very big deal and obviously hints towards a bigger, big, big, grander bad in the form of the Sinister Six, which may or may not happen in this movie, uh, the Amazing Spider-Man 2, but looks like maybe happening in Amazing Spider-Man 3. Makes you wonder whether that's... It's, it's more of a throwaway sort of nod. It's interesting that they would put it on the, in the trailer, though, because uh, normally you think they would save that for the film. But then it may be a sense that they're, uh, they're going to introduce those elements to do away with having to do an extended Sinister Six backstory when they do introduce them. Uh, we will see. Somebody uh, online, a few people online, have been saying, is this a very clever piece of marketing to get people interested in this film? Uh, you know, I think it's fair to say in the office we haven't been extremely excited about this movie. There was a, a we we were okay with the first film, but this people are thinking could this be a credit sting that they're sneaking into the trailer as a kind of a teaser? Mm. If so, hats off because it's it certainly got me interested. Uh, the other thing is that we've seen through posters and uh, other material, press uh, material, that there will be three villains in this film. The Rhino, who's played by Paul Giamatti, who we've been told is a relatively minor villain as far as it goes. He's going to be in the first maybe 10 or 15 minutes. He's been updated from the original cartoon, original cartoon, the original comic version where he is a, a kind of a muscle man from the Eastern Bloc who's had polymer skin, super polymer skin covering him, which gives him super strength and like a rhino, a really tough exterior. Here, he's been made that he's in a massive metal robot suit, like he's some kind of... Terminator marine. It's basically dreadnought armour. There we go. Mm. Uh, So, I mean, that's neat. They're they're kind of taking uh, Spider-Man and refusing to necessarily make it too comic-y and they're they're, they're flexing their muscles and, and doing other stuff with it. So I quite like that. But we've also seen the Green Goblin but not Harry Osborn. No, Harry Osborn, rather than his father, is in, you know, the outfit, the costume, uh, on the uh, flying jobby. Uh, so, yeah, that's also there. Uh, people are saying, oh, is this Spider-Man 3 all over again? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic after seeing this trailer. I'm, I'm quite excited about it. I think they maybe have a little bit more to do on the CGI, mm. uh, but I'm I'm quite picky with that sort of thing. And there's there's fun. I mean, the sequence at the end where he's fleeing Electro in what looks like a power station, he's blowing stuff up with lightning. That's that's kind of cool. Um, that said, I don't think action was ever this particular offshoot of the mythology strong suit. I, the Amazing Spider-Man I enjoyed a lot, but to me the action was kind of forgettable and frankly the whole lizard stuff I could have done without entirely. It wasn't the Amazing Spider-Man for me, it was the Amazing Peter Parker. I really bought into him, I bought into his relationship with you know, uh, with, with Aunt May and, 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 with, uh, uh, and with Gwen as well and I thought the two of them together were fantastic. So more of that and I'll be happy. I do worry that we are venturing perilously close to Spider-Man 3 territory uh, and when you have this many of uh, sort of villains with this many characters in it you can't do justice to any of them uh, that would be my primary worry but we, you know we'll see it may be that the, the others are all an afterthought on it and it focuses primarily on Jamie Foxx so uh, we will find out yeah well, there will be more trailers you can tell because like you say you know this is the big bad the big bad for this movie is Jamie Foxx's Electro and we didn't see much from here so no. expect more 
on that front. Shortly, the other bit of news came directly from Brian Singer's uh, Twitter feed, who said, very you know succinctly, "X-Men Apocalypse 2016 done," uh, announcing a further film that will go on after uh, Days of Future Past. Uh, now, James, I think you know more about him than I do. Who is Apocalypse within the Marvel canon? You'll notice him. He's the guy with the sort of sort of funny clown makeup and the kind of big um, blue exoskeleton with pipes coming out of it. He's kind of the first mutant, um, and he's very, very old and very, very powerful. Uh, and among other things, he's famous for creating his four horsemen. See, the four, four horsemen of Apocalypse, the chief among them being Death, which was uh, Warren Worthington, Angel, who obviously starts off as a blonde-haired rich dude with wings and turns into a very evil-looking blue-skinned chap with pointy ears, pointy teeth and big metal wings that shoot sort of fleshettes um, and he turns him evil but then, he goes, then he goes good again, then he goes evil again then he goes good, it's a whole thing um, but, but Apocalypse has turned up in an awful lot of stuff in the comics I mean there's so much, I mean there's Age of Apocalypse there's a new Age of Apocalypse, he turns up in the whole Messiah complex thing, in the future um, I, I, you know, I have no idea which story they will choose to tell and I've not read all of them myself um, but it's an exciting character, he's a good character, I like him a lot um, I, and I think there could be some fun here. I wonder whether this will tie into, and I, I, I'm predicting this, I'm guessing this, that by the end of Days of Future Past, you'll have some kind of timeline rejig. So it'll kind of not be a do-over, but they will reset certain characters and we'll have a new trouser of time that will officially be where the X-Men are now. You know, we may not see any more of McKellen and, and, and Stuart. They, they may have moved on and we may be in a new world where we have the younger versions as the versions um, so that would be interesting I think if you have something as big as Apocalypse you're going to need uh, like you say a- assistance to him I hmm. guess it can't just be him maybe because uh, you've got so many X-Men now it's incredible uh, anyway that's really exciting and uh, it almost seems to me like they saw that the Spider-Man trailer went up people were talking about that saw people talking about Wonder Woman so Singer went alright cracked his knuckles <laughs> And said, here you go, here's a little tidbit to get you even more excited. Let's drop the A-bomb. Quite so. So that, I think, pretty much uh, wraps up our superhero uh, end of news section. Um, Anyway, on with the show. Okay, it's time for another interview now. Daniel Radcliffe is a very good friend of this parish. He's the same age as the magazine. He played Harry Potter for over a decade and has graduated to some seriously interesting and diverse work since. He sang and danced on Broadway and How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. He screamed and ran on screen in The Woman in Black. And now he's playing the young Allen Ginsberg in Kill Your Darlings, which is a very unusual look at the life of the young beat poets. He spoke to Chris and myself recently. Well, welcome to the Empire Podcast. We are joined today by Daniel Radcliffe to talk about Kill Your Darlings and Hello. hopefully much more. Hello, how are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? Not too bad. We all know that because we've seen each other before this yeah. interview started, but we have to do polite courtesy introductions on the podcast We're going to pretend well. yeah, yeah, that very we're, good. we're civilised. <laughs> I'm good too, Helen, by the way. Thanks for well, asking. Well, I wasn't going to no ask, Chris. <laughs> Shall I just leave? You guys okay? I'll just, I'll just slip out. I'm noticed. What's, what's the weirdest thing you've ever been linked with? What's the weirdest Project? role or rumour that you've um, seen about yourself? For like years, I was having people ask me about uh, like a version of Pinocchio, which apparently like Guillermo del Toro was. He is planning a version of Pinocchio. Yeah, but like it's one of those weird things where apparently I've been linked to it, and apparently he's mentioned me, but I've never been contacted right. like, to my knowledge at all about. It. So like it's yeah, it's very. And the other great one that was what's quite good is that. In terms of making up parts that I'm apparently attached to, the level of hypothetical nonsense part has got higher. 
Because <laughs> when I was 14, I remember a story came out that I was about to play young James Herriot in a new version of All Creatures Great and Small. Wow. So, you know, Freddie Mercury's a step up. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, yeah, so. I think that's fair. I think James Herriot would agree, actually. So, you know. I, I, yeah, I, mean, I don't think anyone's, you know, I don't think we're, we're, we're slandering anyone there. No, I just think I'm no. saying no. No. <laughs> So, I mean, speaking of young versions of people, uh, mm. Kill Your Darlings. Yes. Uh, it's kind of becoming Ginsburg in a way, yeah. isn't it? It's kind of yeah. the origin story. It's an origin movie for poets. Yeah, yeah that's, <laughs> that's, that's what I feel. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean yeah, it's, a, it's about, you know, it's, the, the story sort of centres around Alan, but not, it is kind of more of an ensemble yeah. uh, thing, and it's an amazing cast, obviously. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a film about self-discovery and... and you know, it's uh, going from a, a, a boy to man, both in terms of um, you know creativity and your and your you know his journey as, as a poet, but also in terms of, uh, of you know of um, sex and and uh, and just generally kind of growing up and being suddenly exposed to the life he'd always wanted. Because I think you know the we didn't ever want to play these guys as the I think the danger when you do a, a film about real people is that you become unnecessarily reverential about them and actually that is kind of the antithesis of what the beats were about they were about you know just having a great time and 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 um so what am i trying to say here basically we we didn't want to show them as these dusty old icons of american literature we wanted to show them as the men they were when this film took place mm. you know I, and it made it a lot easier for us i think a lot less intimidating to play these characters the fact that um John Krakidas, our director, wasn't saying to me, you know, play Alan, the, the icon. He was saying, you're a kid called Alan from New Jersey who was desperate to go to New York and yeah. desperate to get out of his hometown. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's it's that was the starting point we all took with our characters, really, and John asked us not to research them beyond the age we played them at because there was nothing to be gained yeah. uh, by that. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the... Did I do a synopsis then? I don't no, think I did. Kind of, um, kind sort of, of, of yeah. yeah. So, so what sort of research material did you use then? I mean, Ginsburg's diaries. With yeah. Them, I mean, they're, they're great, and he's fantastic in them. Because he, 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 clearly, he's a really interesting character, because he, and that, and that, I think, is why the film works, I'll also just say, because the characters and the story are good enough that you could watch a film about them, even if they hadn't become famous, this story is good enough and interesting enough, and the characters are interesting enough um, to sustain it. Um, which is quite the, quite a good test of the, the biopic. The diaries were uh, just a kind of fantastic source of insight. There, he started writing them when he was very very young, and he kept them all through his teenage years. And they show a really interesting guy who was clearly very aware of his intellectual abilities and his you know artistic kind of drive. But and he was also kind of you know borders on arrogant at times in his life not mm. arrogant but he's so full of confidence like the confidence i would never have had in in my work as a 14 year old you know he says something at one point like um oh, i started writing a concerto this morning i've only got 14 bars so far but what i have is marvelous you know he's <laughs> he's he really absolutely you know i think he actually says something at some point which is akin to i i know i'm a genius i just don't know what form that genius is going to take yet but what makes it interesting is that in his actual interactions with people, none of that showed. I think, well, I mean, you've kind of talked about it a little bit already, but what I liked about this was just that it's all so messy. <laughs> you know, every it's, it's not a simple story. It's not guy goes to college and falls in love and comes to terms with his sexuality and becomes a great poet. It's no. not that film. You know, no. it's, <laughs> it's, it's so much messier and there's a lot of kind of tones and, and mm. conflicting emotions, I think, in everybody's life. Yeah. Uh, going absolutely. through the film, not just yeah. the... Um, 
uh, Alan and, and Lou, as you mentioned, but, you know, uh, Jack, Jack, Ben, ben oh, everybody. Sorry, Ben, Bill. Well, Bill. <laughs> oh, yeah, but that's, there's such a thin line, isn't there, in this movie? Um, between, that's when, I remember when Ben Foster first turned up and we chatted to him and, you know, he spoke to us immediately in his William Burroughs voice and that was, he stayed in that for like the pretty much the entire movie. Wow. And, um, and, uh, and uh, he walked away and Dane just turned to me and went, well, this is going to be a lot easier because they got the actual Burroughs. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was, and it was like, it was like, wow, that, that it's, uh, it's uncanny. I mean, Ben, Ben, Ben's performance is amazing because it could so easily have been played purely as like a comic turn mm. and he gives the character such like a depth of emotion and re a lot of compassion as well and that's the thing that i think struck me about the beats when reading about them is how much they adored each other they i mean it wasn't just like oh we're friends we're mates they were you know they loved each other alan loved jack jack loved bill they all they all just had a huge amount of um you know, the letters between Alan and Jack in later life were just beautiful and amazing. And the, the and then seeing Jack Kerouac's notes that he gave Alan on Howl. And I think there's even part of the first line of Howl, that very famous first line that might have come from like a note from Kerouac. Or something. Wow. Like it's, it's, it's fascinating. Their relationship was, was amazing. So it's, um, yeah, I really, we wanted to. And I think that was one of the important things about what happened on this film. And it comes as a, con a direct consequence of the fact that it was such a low budget film and there were no trailers it meant that everyone just hung out together all the time and we became very close i have more friends i like i've, I've made more better friends among the actors on this film than i probably have on any other job in my life like right. just because they're it was such a fast shoot and it was so intense and we all had to like have each other's back all the time and it was great and that so we built up a, a relationship that could you know could somehow have been viewed as as being parallel to um, as to the beats. The other thing I'll say, just because I know that things I say get listened to and people freak out sometimes, <laughs> is that I, I, you know, I, I, my best friends on Potter were mainly the crew because the, they were the ones that were there every day, yeah. and I was there every day. So I like to say like this wasn't a slight, slight on anyone else that I said I had. I made best friends on that film. But but the truth of the matter is, you know, I like I mean, Dane and I are now in a fantasy football league together and like we then we we do hang out a lot so I'm, i feel very very lucky to have met all of them i'm um i'm two and one at the moment I meaning I've, I've won two lost one and i'm gonna play dane next week and i'm gonna destroy him <laughs> and i and i'm not even like joking because his his quarterback is is on a bye week so he's not playing and his quarterback is like all he has on that team so i'm i'm if i don't win if i lose we'll have to do a follow-up or something where i just like <laughs> eat humble pie um but yeah i i am i'm looking forward to beating him <laughs> so where did this love of uh, american football come from for you when i did how to succeed um the musical on broadway i uh i they, they started a fantasy football league in the, in the theater and i'd always been in, like, i'd always watched american football and enjoyed it and i understood it but when you get into the fantasy side of it it's just an entirely different level of obsession and like i mean i i will uh i knew i had a day of interviews and a photo shoot today i still stayed up till three o'clock in the morning just to watch the first half of a game last night started at 1 <laughs> 30 and i was like no and, I, and before for the super bowl in the year in the year i went to bed at seven o'clock in the evening set my alarm for midnight got up here we go like it's brilliant so you're not tired so do you have a team do you follow it? the new york giants which is, okay. is something that you know if that's that's not gone well i'm really glad you two aren't into american no. football because otherwise you could give me some major crap i did actually read an article now. recently about the giants saying really? that they weren't doing well they yeah they've lost their first three games in 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 pretty 
terrible fashion, I have to say. But the thing is, like, they're that kind of team. They're the kind of team where yeah, it's very similar, actually, to being an England cricket fan. <laughs> where you have to sort of they are they they don't always win the games you want them to win but they will win the games they need to win although this season that hasn't been true of the giants because they kind of needed to win last week and they didn't score a point but you're also a cricket fan i am also a cricket huge fan. cricket fan yeah. and uh, yeah, you, you showed up yeah indeed it was fantastic um you showed up recently on the uh, duckworth lewis methods i did yes. second album yeah i'm a big fan of the duckworth lewis yeah, method exactly. uh how did that come about for you oh they 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 reached out and i guess uh um, it's not them. We don't have no, them, no, by the way. No, 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 no. <laughs> and here on the Duckworth Lewis, uh, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of people just doing walk bys at the moment. Yeah. Um, uh, suddenly, everyone has something to do down there. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, sorry, it's no, it's because um, Helen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, they 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 reached out, and I guess they heard that I was a fan, and they knew I was a cricket fan as well. And yeah. um, I think their their plan was to get as many cricket fans as they could onto onto the album and. Yeah, it was really cool. It was it was great. I was I I grew up a massive fan of the Divine Comedy because my dad was as well. Because um, it's obligatory if you're. Hard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it is. It yeah. is. And, um, and so I've always you know I've always thought uh, Neil's amazing and and his songwriting's brilliant and and so yeah it was a very easy decision and I I had a you know it's a totally weird little monologue that I have in the in the middle of the third man but yeah. it's actually and I, the thing I'm pleased with I may be very very biased but it's it is it is my favorite song on the album like, I think it's a great tune like, it's, it's a great song yeah, yeah. it's really good great and the lyrics there, yeah. there what's there's one lyric in it where he says um was it I think I'll spend a little time uh Solving crimes planning like crimes planning like crimes Lime. like yeah. Harry Lime. That's a that's a great yeah. line. It's good. Um, it is good. So were you in a studio with the guys, or was it one of those things where you just go into a booth like this? You no, don't I meet was in Neil a studio. I, I met I met Neil and Thomas and and, and went in and uh, and sort of you know I didn't really know what they wanted it to sound like if they wanted me to be doing some sort of third man type voice or what. <laughs> I didn't. So I didn't know. So I just I just went in and so we did it very simply. I think we did about. Three takes, four takes. Not bad. And, um, yeah. and, and the royalties have been spilling in for you? Oh, is yeah, that, is exactly. That... Yes. Get me through at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> There's the nest egg. Get me, get, get me through till Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> but we talked earlier on, um, before the podcast for uh, Empire's Pine and Milk interview, yeah. um, about... Uh, whether you played a musical instrument, you said you used to play bass for about three minutes. Yes. Uh, so is there a rock star usually in, in actors? Is there a frustrated musician I trying to get out? I think there is. Yeah. yeah, I think... I mean, I know... I know Gary Oldman once said to me, like, if, if he had a go again, he'd be a, he'd be a singer in a band. I mean, he does play in bands that sometimes Gary plays. Bar- Gary's a very good bass player. Really? Uh, Gary's a serious good Gary can play pretty much any song by the Beatles you care to name. Really? Yeah, he taught me the... He's There's a, a challenge for next time he's in. There's a challenge. Um, yeah, no, he's, uh, he's, he taught me the bass line to come together when I was 14. That's a cool little moment in my life. <laughs> uh, um, and, um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I do think actors on the whole there's some part of them that is a frustrated uh, frontman or something. I mean, I, I say actors, I mean me. <laughs> and, um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I definitely, I, I can see that. And, you know, there are some people that do it really well. There are some people that cross over brilliantly, like Jack Black and, you know, I mean, it's tenaciously on everyone's cup of tea, but, I, you know, I think they've got a couple of great songs. And tribute, they're fun. Tribute. Like, they're, 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 they're great fun. You can't, you can't entirely dislike tenaciously. I, I, I think they're, Right, but there's and also the musicianship in that band is is yeah, massively yeah. underrated. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I 
there's also some really bad examples of actors <laughs> who I won't go into, but we all know who they are. Because this isn't this isn't your first uh, sort of foray into the world of music. You did a music video last year. You were in a music video for yeah, yeah no, I did. And for this a is slow my club. bad. Yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry, yeah no, no, no yeah. worries. Um, for Slow Club, uh, who were a great band, and you should all go and buy their records. And um, and uh, yeah, that was really fun. I'd always wanted to do a music video. Um, I've always, you know, loved the idea. And then wh- I interviewed Slow Club at the beginning of last year because um, I was freelancing for a mix yeah. or something. <laughs> what, what were you doing? <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if that sounds weird. But out of context, you know, I moonlight as I don't know. Um, Do you want to come on the podcast? I, I, I actually week. wrote the uh, Freddie Mercury story. Myself. <laughs> I started that. Um, but yeah, uh, sorry. What's this? You can edit my pauses. <laughs> and it was a great song. I loved the band. Um, and yeah, and they they asked me to do it, and I loved the the synopsis of what it was going to be. Um, so I always wanted to do one. I've been offered a couple before, uh, but they weren't... I didn't... It was either a case of I didn't love the song enough or I didn't like the concept for the video mm. enough. Um, but on this one, I, it just all synced up and I was... Um, I was very... It was really cool. And I'm very... And actually, to be honest, like, it was... It, ca- it came at a time when I really sort of... I, I don't know. It, I, I needed to do something like that in a way because it was. It showed me a little more grown up than people had yeah, seen yeah. me in a while, yeah. and and there was definitely some value in that. I think. So speaking of uh, rock musicians, brings us neatly on to Horns. Yeah. Um, which I'm very excited about. I love the book. I haven't seen any. I think I saw that 30 second clip that they released online, and literally that's the only thing. Yeah, that's which been is so cut far. from the movie. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so good. Uh, but I mean, we had uh, we had. Uh, Joe Hill. Joe Hill. I know. I was oh, literally. Cool. He's it's a good interview, isn't he? Having, yeah, he was fantastic. <laughs> He's amazing. I so want had... every press conference I ever do. He's fantastic. <laughs> he kind of bounces around. Well, yeah, a lot and also Hill. he because he's an author and not an actor. He has uh, just more license to do whatever the hell he wants. So, like when you get like I'm, if I get asked a really stupid question, I have to answer it. And whereas <laughs> Thank Joe Hill, you for that, well, no, 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 it's not, I'm, I was not meaning you guys. Um, uh, but you know, if Joe Hill gets asked a stupid question, he just goes, "What." That's ridiculous. Don't ask me that. Ask something better. Like he's kind of yeah, he's kind of great like that. Yeah, he's fine. So, so what can we expect from? I mean, you know, you've now seen the finished. Yeah, Toronto, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> what do you expect from it? It's mad. <laughs> like it's yeah. a mad film. Um, I'm incredibly proud of it. I think it's something that defies being put into a category, which is I love because you know that's what the industry increasingly seems to be about. Um, is about making a film that is marketable rather than good. Yeah. And um, and you know the truth of this film is that it's like everyone's. I think everyone thinks it should be a hard one to market. Maybe it will. I don't know. It's 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 really funny. Like the first third is like some UNESCO absurdist comedy, and then the middle turns into this really like heartbreaking tragic love story and then the end is uh this you know the finale of a revenge movie basically um the ending has provoked a lot of different reactions so far from people my personal feeling is how else could you end it but um but it's it's a it's a big you know if you'll pardon the expression balls out ending <laughs> like it's 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 like it's it's uh yeah i mean it's alexander Adler, i think is one of the best one of the best directors I've worked with, and it's it's really interesting because people so regard him as a as a horror director, and of course that's what he has you know specialised in. But uh, you know Alex's understanding of people and relationships is is right up there. You know he's he that's what he ultimately wants to make films about, and he knows that you don't you won't care unless you care about the people involved, you won't care about yeah. the the movie. Well, you've got Frankenstein coming out, coming so up. Igor, yes, and is that you know is that full on Igory? 
It's before. Hunchback. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's he's Hunchback. I had my prosthetic fitting for the Hunchback the other day. Um, you know, it's. I think he's in this script. He's uh, granted a lot more depth than he's ever had before. <laughs> I will say to people now, people who start banging on about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and why have we changed this from the book, it is barely an adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It is not that story. It is so, you know, it's, I'll just say that for a second. But also, I mean, it's, it's about, it's about two young guys and one of them, Igor is, I won't talk about Igor's backstory because that's, that's one of the interesting things about the film, I think, mm. is that he's granted a, a story, story like, he, uh, where yeah. he's from. Um, but ultimately it's about these two young guys who meet and they, but they lived, they live in a time, it's set in the mid 1800s and they live in a time where science was regarded as not just being observational anymore. It was regarded as being creative. You weren't just going to look at nature and no, and you know, notate it. Yeah. You were going to change it and shape it to the way, you know, man was more powerful than nature. That's the time. And there was this real, real, uh, real life guy called, um, I believe his surname was Aldini, and he believed in a thing called galvanism, which was mm -hmm. the idea that uh, electricity contained within it the spark of life, and he tried to do all kinds of things to bodies to resurrect them and things. And so that's really that it's so, so it's it's weaving Igor's story in with Frankenstein, who is regarded in this film as a kind of real life Aldini genius, mad. Um, socially kind of he's like you know we, we, we've we joked at times we're sort of making like the social network for the 1850s like because he is kind of he is like Frankenstein Victor has a kind of um, <clears throat> he is not the most socially uh, skilled yeah. right. person in this okay. in this film um, and uh, so you're Eduardo in this case I guess I would be <laughs> okay. yes um, in fact I really would be because it is about two guys who kind of are Grappling with each other, and one's trying to to bring the other one back from from the the edge of you know he's 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 dancing a very fine line between morality and immorality, and and Igor is 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 trying to to pull him back from it. Wow. I mean, but what you know that's so that that's what it's about. I mean, it's about it's about science, it's about youth, it's about um, and it's it's about two pe friends. I mean, and a, and a, and a and a relationship. But it's I think it's going to be really interesting. The, the great thing is that. Everyone kind of thinks they know what it is, I think, or kind of thinks they know something. Trust me, they don't. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's a Max Landis script, and, yeah. you know, it's everything that goes with that. It's, it's adventurous <laughs> and imaginative. That's one of the reasons I loved it so much as well, was because it was coming out of a studio, and it was like... It's a really inventive, imaginative, clever retelling of Frankenstein, which sort of weaves in every version of Frankenstein. It's the most qualified script I've ever read. The front cover of the script said the following. Frankenstein by Ma Max Landis, based on, in parenthesis, the American zeitgeist popular culture interpretation of, close brackets, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So it's like an adaptation of everything from the monster mash to, you know, uh, the, the original Frankenstein movies to young Frankenstein. Everything is sort of... Bits of all that is incorporated. There is a, you know, a short homage to a young Frankenstein. Awesome. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there's, so we, 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 we pay tribute to all of that, but it's not, it is a completely original yeah. take oh. on it. Let's film here. Sorry. I've yeah. two very short kind of follow-on questions about that. Yeah. Um, first one, slightly facetiously, have you read the Terry Pratchett books in which the Igors appear and they're almost a tribe in themselves? 
No, Highly I have I've read some of the Discworld books, but yeah. I've not read that one. Um, do you know they what, they what turn up is? in some of the... They turn up in several of the uh, City Watch books, so oh, okay. uh, they're certainly in Making Money, but I think they're in before that. Okay, cool. Check them out. Uh, and secondly, um, Cripple of Vinish Man this summer, did that kind of, you know, you, you obviously had incredible physical work to <laughs> do that because it just, you're, yeah. you're, you were twisted up on yourself. You, you must have been doing yoga every night to no, recover from the... Yeah, I mean, not really, I'm just on a roller. You know, those big right. foam roller oh, yeah. things and you sort of roll yourself out and stretch and do all of that. And I saw uh, my physio a couple of times a week. But yes, this is the year of, of physical difference. Right. Um, <laughs> it is... Um, um, it's, uh, you know, my, my chiropractor is a very happy man. Because um, <laughs> I, I then, um, I actually did a day as Igor, just rehearsing with a couple of, not rehearsing, rehearsing, but I guess I go through the script with a, a friend of mine and we just sort of sit down and work through it together and just sort of bounce ideas around about the character. And just, so, bef- so I've got something going on before I go into rehearsal. And, um, and uh, I spent a day sort of hunched over and doing it. Because you know you can't just have the prosthetic on. You have to do you have to do it yourself and make it fit with your physicality. And I did it for half a day, and I was screwed, like just fucked. Like my, I was I couldn't like I, I was I'd be standing upright, completely still later, and suddenly be in lots of pain. So I'd have to, I've had to kind of rework it slightly, physicality. Um, but it's working now, and I'm mm. I'm really pleased with it. And and it's it's weird because I've been doing all these like really physically slightly contorted roles all year. I went into the prosthetics fitting the other day, and I just said I'm thinking of doing something like this. And they're all like, really? Can you keep that up? And I was like, yeah, yeah, this doesn't even hurt. This is fine. And and, and they, they were like, that's pretty extreme, because I now have just no idea of what is extreme I'm doing to my body or not. So um, I'm glad they, uh, they seem to like it, though. Yeah, good luck. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's fine. I spent, I had to get a uh, cast in it, so I had to get, like, um, I had to get into the position and then have a life cast done. So that was a really good test of, like, if you can hold it for 40 minutes, you then, can hold it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And what about the voice? Uh, I don't mm. expect you to preview the voice here, right. but uh, you know, Igor in the past has been very much that yes, master, very much character. Yeah, no, I mean it's not going to be that. It's it's going to be, um, you know, not not quite as uh, posh as me. He said, dropping the tea on quite. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, that that would be the the idea would be to have a sort of uh, it, there'll be. A, a bit of an accent, but nothing like major or nothing. Not and not like Eastern European. He'll be yeah. English, you know. I mean, the thing is, um, there's an there's an interesting query about you know what. Given the backstory that he has, which obviously can't say too much about, it's interesting as to what his accent would be. Um, but I I've just gone for something that's kind of slightly generic, just outside Londony kind of sound. Um, and yeah, unless. I, I, yeah, I think that's it's right because he's he's you want his voice to feel real, but also he shouldn't sound you know like he's grown mm. up in London and mm. had a private education. So, <laughs> um, so you know, the unless that's a twist. Different day. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's his backstory. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, I found it. <laughs> Long last. Um, just very very quickly uh, again for the Pine of Milk interview we did for Empire, you talked about how Daredevil was your favourite comic book character growing up, mm. and we were talking about you know do you want to go into another franchise, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, but would you have you considered being a superhero? Have you considered that sort of thing? Um, that, yeah, I think about came? it all the time. Yeah, um, I, I don't know if anyone right has now, considered has me for a superhero, but I've certainly considered myself. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'd uh, the, the the one I think I'd like a go at because it hasn't been done yet. I don't know how it'd be. To my knowledge, it hasn't been done. Probably. A, Actually, I bet there's a really old version of it. Like, I bet there's The Flash. He was great. Wally West. They're starting a TV show. Ah! 
Curses! <laughs> Foiled again! I've ruined this day. Never playing the Flash. Fine, thank you, Helen. Um, no, I, yeah, I mean, I... I don't. Um, I would love that. That stuff's fun, man. You know, I'd yeah. love to play a superhero. That stuff's great. I mean, Dane. Dane's has been doing um, oh, yeah. Harry Osborn Spider-Man. and Spider Man's, and he had a great time. So it's uh, yeah. It's I'm. I, I love it. Yeah, of course, absolutely. I mean, not if it was uh, probably. I, I would have to think twice if it was signing on for three of them. But, um, but, but yeah. <laughs> which is the standard thing these days. It is. Yeah. But not not Freddie Mercury, man. But uh, no. <laughs> but maybe Daredevil, who's available at Marvel and is. Well, very much yeah. open well I think that's the thing if you were going to remake one they could kind of do that one because the first one wasn't great you know what's going to happen now oh, we're going to start a rumour <laughs> you know what this, the yeah. Canadian a Canadian I have to you know I don't know if they'll listen to this but if they are uh, Ros and Mocker congratulations um, because this, it was a brilliant thing they did right so when I was doing press in Canada one of the guys from this radio, huge uh, Canadian radio show comes in and says to me comes in and says uh, so um, the world's in uproar that you haven't been cast as Christian Grey in Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> and I was like, what? No one's in uproar. That's ridiculous. And then I found out later, it was literally them sitting around thinking, what can we? What mad thing can we ask Dan Radcliffe? So they went in and asked that. And then it went everywhere. Like, I was fielding questions by the end of the day about why I'd, like, turned it down. I was like, no, I was never offered. They never wanted me. No one wanted me to play that part. I didn't want me to play it. It was, um, yeah, it was It was one of those, but they, they did, I, I did like the, the just the, like, they randomly decided to ask an insane question and then it went everywhere. So, well done if you're listening. Guys. So, Optimus Prime? Optimus Prime's next. Yeah. yeah. Will, yeah. Um, just very quickly, I mean, Fantastic Beasts is obviously going to the screen. What, what do you think? How does it feel to know there's going to be a Potter without you, as it were? Yeah, I mean, look, it's great. I'm really excited. There's a load of people out there who are very sad that that world is not still, you know, something they can access all the time or mm. there's nothing new coming out of it. So it's fantastic, you know, and, and I, I'm... The thing I'm, I think I'm pleased most about is that it's, you know, it has been Joe's decision. Because if it's been anyone else's, you would immediately go, oh, cash cow, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, but actually, Joe... She doesn't need the money. She just she she loves the, the she loves the fact that people love that world. And I think, especially with the success she's had writing the two other novels, one under an assumed name, it probably gave her the confidence to go. Okay, I can go back to yeah. that world now and not be you know. So it was. Uh, I'm. I'm. Yeah. I'm very happy for her and all who. Sailing. You know, sail. <laughs> uh, no. Oh, all who all who uh, you know end up working on. It. I think it's yeah. gonna be, it's gonna be fun. I'm really interested to see 1920s. You know, muggles and wizards. I think that's a cool, that's yeah. a cool idea. Although, like, would wizards have changed that much? I mean, like, I don't know. This is the thing. I mean, because also half the cast could technically still be alive. Like, <laughs> oh, Gam- you've opened up as a kind of worms. Gambon's character is like a hundred and Dumbledore's like one hundred and forty, isn't it? If I get that yeah. wrong, now I'm going to get letters. Can open worms everywhere. <laughs> this yeah. parachute is a knapsack, etc., etc. Et et <laughs> uh, it's been a pleasure, Dan Radcliffe. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. Cheers. Cheers. Okay, it's on to the main event, people. It's reviews time. Uh, This week, there are quite a few new films to talk about, but let's start where we just finished with Kill Your Darlings. So that sees a young Allen Ginsberg head to Columbia University, where he meets Dane DeHaan's Lucian Carr and falls in with Jack Houston's Jack Kerouac and Ben Foster's William S. Burroughs at the root of the beat movement. So what did we think of this one? Beat Poet Society is... Yeah, we liked (laughs) it. I mean, we liked this film a a lot. The Beat Poets have been... Hollywood's been kind of drinking at the well a bit lately. There mm. was the James Franco Howl a couple of years ago, which was more of a look at um, specifically the the controversy around around 
Allen Ginsberg freeform, great freeform poem. Um, and uh, on the road, the Jack Kerouac adaptation finally came to the screen lately as well. This is more of a story, an origin story about how these guys came together and yeah. how they inspired each other and the inspiration and the muse behind this, this, this new form of artistic expression in the kind of post-war era in America. And it's seen through the eyes of Daniel Radcliffe, who's very, very good, um, in, a, in, a, in a very interesting kind of departure for him as mm. an American, you know, slightly owlish-looking Allen Ginsberg going to Columbia University in 1944 and falling in, falling in with the kind of classic charismatic tearaway who inspires him. Um, and that would be Dane DeHaan's character, Lucien Carr. Now, if you've seen the trailers, you know there's an element of murder mystery in this because there's a true story behind it, which is a slightly predatorial um, mentor-type figure played by James's friend, Michael C. Hall, Dexter himself. David Camera, who holds a kind of a spell over the young Dane DeHaan character, Lucien, but he ends up dying in suspicious circumstances mm. and in fact that's not a that's not a spoiler that's in the sorry, that's an early that's scene, an early yeah. scene setter the film isn't really a murder mystery it's not really a thriller it's not really interested in that and it's certainly not a procedural so the dexter comparisons would end there but it is an interesting look at as i say a, you know a society in change and you know these these people were at the vanguard of it they were you know they were kind of firebrands artistically speaking and they're all interesting characters and burroughs is there and and, and kerouac less present perhaps than some of the other films uh, Lucy and Carr and and uh, and Ginsburg, the two kind of main drivers, mm. and, and and all the acting is really really good, and it's just an interestingly kind of crafted, and I think the visual style tries to mimic a little bit of the the kind of artistic um, innovation, I guess, of yeah. these literary figures. I'd agree with that totally. I think I think what I really liked about this is that it it wasn't quite what I was expecting. It's not kind of Beat Man Begins. Um, it it from from reading about it, you know, beforehand, it was sort of, you know, it sounded like a sort of slightly timid young Allen Ginsberg goes to university and kind of finds himself by falling in love with this with this guy there, this fa- fabulous flamboyant guy that he meets, and it's kind of not at all that Ginsberg is a little bit insecure on the outside, but inside he's totally confident, as Daniel Radcliffe just discussed, and I think that really does kind of come across on screen. And he's not lost; he's not in self doubt particularly. He's not looking to find a way. He's just glad that he's found people like him finally. And and it, it isn't just, you know, oh, they fall in love and, and everything falls from that. It's it's much more complicated than that. And both of their emotions are so much messier than that. Mm. that I think it makes for a really, really interesting take on all this. So, yeah, and, and as you say, very, very good performances from everybody. I love the idea of Beat Man. Beat Man, like an origin <laughs> story for this superhero whose superpower is not rhyming. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 uh, you know if you've seen the, the James Franco Howl, it's a courtroom drama. I mean, yeah. this is a fascinating period in American history, and and all those films from the sort of late forties, the film noir era, and the fifties, the country's changing, and you have these forces of conservatism against radical, and all of these things play into into the story so nicely. So I think it's it's really kind of vibrant territory for a film to explore, and a great place for Daniel Radcliffe to be. We talk about yeah. this a lot a lot in the office that you know a guy that. Un, un self-consciously reinventing himself post Potter, but looking for interesting, interesting mm-hmm. projects, and I think he's really found one. And he's—I mean—he's been attached to this since two thousand and eight, since uh, since it was first kind of mooted, and it, it had to be pushed back and pushed back. But like, he's clearly really committed to the story, and, and I think it really sh- comes across in his performance. So that got four stars from us. That's a strong recommendation for Kill Your Darlings. Uh, okay, next up, Nebraska. We've also touched on. So uh, Bruce Dern plays uh, Woody, who thinks he's won the lottery, and his son David, played by Will Forte, 
reluctantly agrees to drive him across the state to put his mind at rest and convince him that really this isn't the case. Uh, shot in black and white, the film also stars June Squibb and Breaking Bad's Bob Odenkirk. So what did we think of this one? Go and see this movie for June Squibb. She's <laughs> utterly brilliant in this film, uh, playing the other half to um, Bruce Dern's um, lottery winner. Uh, she is sharp and snarky and just funny and frank and all that kind of good stuff. She reminds me of a male version of Frank Constanza from uh, Seinfeld. I can't imagine her shouting, Serenity now! Uh, she is such a lot of good fun, and there's a scene in a graveyard which uh, made me laugh much more than maybe I should have. I watched this in Cannes, lucky me, and it came across to me like some kind of lengthy poem, not mm. quite like Howl, but uh, kind of a father and son story. We've talked a lot about father and son stories recently, but this is a real, a really believable, really honest, frank uh, discussion of what it is to grow old and what it is to not truly connect with your father and not be left in his shadow but feel like being mediocre is fine just doing nothing's okay and what happens if your father who's kind of losing his mind a little thinks he's won the lottery do you indulge him or do you do you, do you bond with him finally or do you re- reject him uh, so yeah it's it's deep and meaningful this one yeah it's. I mean we talked about how um, Alexander Payne loves a road movie mm. and especially loves them, you know, around his home state of Omaha and about Schmidt is a good example. And and I think what I, one of the things I really enjoyed about this is that I guess ultimately every road movie is a bit like the Odyssey, isn't it? You know, somebody going from A to B and encountering strange monsters along the way. And this film has some very strange monsters in it. <laughs> um, Stacey Keach plays plays this this guy in their old hometown. They revisit on the route to for, for um, Woody to collect he thinks a million dollars that is basically just some marketing scam his son knows this and tries to dissuade him but he won't hear it and uh, Stacey Keach plays a guy who wants a piece of the action and he's very very sort of morally corrupt character and uh, Woody's nephews this sort of Tweedledum Tweedledee characters as well that, that again are just you know dim but, <laughs> but you know weirdly menacing and they're great characters and I agree I agree with Ali 100% that um, June Squibb is is a lot of fun. Although strangely, Alexander Payne was quite sort of a little not dismissive, but a little. She, he played down her. You know, her scenes were the showy scenes, mm. and I think Alexander Payne is more interested in the quieter moments in the film and the yeah. quiet moments of sort of meaning between father and son, which is where this film really excels. Um, but it also excels because it has Bruce Dern, who is fantastic. I think he's cranky mm. and he's funny, but he's believable and he's not a caricature, which is he would have easily become. And I see him as a very, very strong Oscar probable, I would say. Oscar tends to have a habit of giving these kind of semi-lifetime achievement awards, doesn't it? We've seen... Yeah, it does. I mean, I think, well, Jeff Bridges a couple of years ago is a good example. You know, he's brilliant consistently, has been consistently brilliant for 30 or more years. Mm. And so finally, if in the right year when he's nominated for a, a, a good enough film, and not to say he wasn't very good in Crazy Heart, he was, but... You know, mm. it, it felt like it was his t- turn. And I think there's an element of that with Bruce Dern as well. I mean, there's been talk about him ever since Cannes that, you know, he'd be in the running this year and, and deservedly so. But at the same time, were it not for that lifetime of great work behind him, would this be showy enough? I don't know, because it's, no- it's not a showy role, is it? It's not a showy role. T- ro- it's, <clears throat> it's not a showy role or a showy role. <laughs> it's not a showy role at all. And you're right. I think that is a, that is a factor with Oscars. Mm. But they do like to get... These guys, Hal Holbrook recently, Christopher Plummer, uh, um, Alan Arkin, a few years Alan ago. Arkin, Nick Nolte for the Warrior. You know, they, they, these are they, they tend to get a seat at the table, but not necessarily an invitation to the stage. And it'd be nice that 
you know, it's a genuinely subtle performance, I think, and it could have been a comic, kind of cranky, annoying term, but he he gives it kind of real pathos. Um, I would just want to say, if you haven't seen a lot of his earlier career work, um, he was nominated for an Oscar for Coming Home, which is a post-Vietnam film with James Fonda, which is really very beautiful, and he's fantastic in it. Um, great, the, uh, the Jack Clayton, Great Gatsby... Um, he plays Tom Buchanan fantastically well, and we mentioned it already today. Silent Running, but he you know plays that on his own. Yeah. Um, all good, check him out. I mean, I'd also give a shout out to to Will Forte, who we've previously seen, you know, on bits and pieces of Saturday Night Live, um, and uh, of course in that sort of MacGyver spoof uh, a couple of years ago. But he's he's really dialed back and very very effective here in, in in a quiet role. And you know, it's one of those roles where it isn't at all showy, even by the standards of this film, which is very much underplayed. Um, but without him, nothing else would work either. Mm. You know, no matter how how good everyone else is. So so full marks to him um, for a very good good film. And also, it, you know, the black and white in this case gives it a real kind of depression era feel. It feels like you know something very Steinbeckian or something. Yes, it's uh, it's a, a really great film. So we give it five stars. So that is a huge recommendation from Empire Go See Nebraska. Next, we'll talk about the film that's probably going to get the widest release of any of these. Uh, Frozen is Disney's adaptation of The Snow Queen. Uh, wherein young Elsa, who's voiced by Idina Menzel, has uncontrollable powers to create snow and ice. And when they break loose, she runs for the hills. Her sister Anna, who's voiced by Kristen Bell, has to go after her. And so begins this adventure. Now, not to be stereotypical, but I think I'm the, one, the only one who's, of us who's seen this, haven't I? OK, so this is, this is a film that's been in the works at Disney for quite a long time, as is usual for animated films. They have a very long development period. Um, I was at Disney Animation Headquarters for The Princess and the Frog a few years ago, and there was already concept art on the walls for this. So it's been in, in development for at least that long. Uh, but it's gone through, I think, some changes along the way, and they've kind of retooled it. I think in the, in the in the wake of the success of Tangled, I think they've kind of made it very much in that kind of mould. So we have, you know, these two very perky, fun female characters. Uh, Anna in particular is very funny. Uh, but they're kind of in some ways, second fiddle uh, to to the male characters that then surround them. They sort of throw in all these kind of comic male characters to just kind of dilute any, any girliness or princessiness, which I think Disney feels doesn't work terribly well these days. So you, you also have the kind of ice harvester, Kristoff, uh, who's voiced by Jonathan Groff, who's a Broadway star, who kind of helps Anna on her quest to find her sister after she runs away. He comes with a reindeer best friend called Sven who is kind of dog-like and kind of just, you know, mute person-like. Could it be like Maximus in Tangled? What? Yes. Yes, it is. Very, very similar indeed. Um, And then the other kind of comedy character, and he is an utter standout, is the sentient snowman Olaf, who's voiced by Josh Gad, who was one of the original stars of the Broadway Book of Mormon. From the trailers, looks incredibly annoying. He is actually very, very funny. There is a a song, you may be able to find clips of it online, um, where he sings about how he can't wait to find out what a snowman does in summer. (laughs) Uh, He was was essentially accidentally created by Elsa when she goes off on this kind of ice and snow creation spree. She accidentally, you know, brings this snowman to life and he just kind of wanders off. He's very innocent, very perky, very optimistic, uh, completely naive and is genuinely excited to, to go sunbathing and swimming. Uh, in the summer uh, and it's it is actually quite charming while he does appear annoying at first he's good uh, but the, but those are only two of the male characters there's also a prince there's also an evil duke who's kind of you know 
um, conspiring against Elsa in her absence. So there's there's kind of a lot going on, and there's some really odd troll characters. They're very cute to look at, but what they've done with them, I think, is likely to cause some controversy. So is there a squirrel trying to get a nut? <laughs> there is no squirrel. No, there are also, however, some really good Broadway tunes. They got the people who wrote Book of Mormon to do the the songs for this, so they're they're big big numbers. But there's a little bit of wit and sort of self knowledge about them as well, which I thought worked really well. I have a question. Sure. We we really liked Tangled, didn't we? I think yeah, and didn't really get a lot of attention or love necessarily. Mm. But it had one or two really transcend- transcendent moments, even yeah. in three D. Mm. Remember the the the, the lanterns was great. The, the lanterns, exactly. The Chinese lantern scene was beautiful and it had one or two other really good bits. Does yeah. this have anything as transcendent as that? I will say it, it's got the best snow and ice animation that I've ever seen. That sounds like damning with faint praise possibly, but it's it's genuinely just beautiful, beautiful snow and ice The greatest scenery. depiction of a glacier in a Disney, <laughs> in a Disney But really, Disney I mean, movie. you know, it's, it's gorgeous to look at. I mean, as you'd expect with Disney animation, they always kind of knock it out of the park in terms of, of how it looks. I think my, my basic problem with it was I've done, you know, a bit of reading about sort of Disney history. I've interviewed a lot of people over the years. We we wrote a big piece in the magazine a few years ago um, about sort of what went wrong with Disney in the 80s and 90s. And basically in the 80s, it went horribly wrong because they lost all their talented people. Um, And basically the corporation was kind of being too corporate and not allowing people any freedom. So people like John Lasseter, people like Tim Burton left and never went back. You know, and and they just lost a generation of talent. Um, in the nineties, they had this kind of resurgence with the Little Mermaid, you know, the Lion King, uh, Pocahontas, all the rest. But then they got kind of stuck in a rut again. And and when other studios started innovating with CG and stuff, Disney kind of didn't, and again, just kind of fell by the wayside for a few years. Since John Lasseter's come in, he's really tried to bring it back up again, reintroduce hand-drawn animation, all the rest. But I feel like there's a danger right now of them getting a little bit stuck in the same rut in that they felt that The Princess and the Frog underperformed and so they've run away from anything that they felt... It's my impression that they felt ruined that. And they've kind of stopped... It feels like they've stopped taking risks. It feels like this is 100% from the Tangled playbook. The princesses look the same. You've got the same kind of sidekick. You've got the same kind of, you know, songs. You've got the same kind of humour... And it, it just doesn't feel like they're pushing the envelope. And I think all of the people around them are pushing the envelope. And I don't want to see Disney fall behind. I can see why they are using the same visual um, palette, if that's the mm. right phrase, for the way people look. Uh, there have been arguments about how can we not have another big-eyed, slim-waisted female character in a Disney movie. But sometimes you've just got to allow artists to have their style and just run with it. Uh, you wouldn't be upset that the minions weren't represented in a female or male form, would you? Anyway, so I kind of get that. I can see how you look at them and go, oh, I know what kind of movie I'm getting into. It's that kind of uh, princessy, but not really type vibe. I get that, but I just hope, like you say, it doesn't get. We don't mm. have a repeat, repeat, repeat. Um, mm. Otherwise, we'll lose that magic. Wreck It Ralph Earth in a Year. That's true. Was great because it kind of it set out its stall very confidently and said, look, obviously this is a game movie. You can see the kind of visual dynamism we have here. They're playing with eight bit and sixteen bit and you know two D, three D stuff, and that was all very clever. But that was great, and this feels a little bit kind of generic. It that- feels a bit it's a bit safe. I would agree. I mean, like it's not that they're not doing anything good because that's a really good example of what they are doing. Also, the uh, the short that precedes this is absolutely fantastic and absolutely technologically and artistically and story wise, it is one of the best things Disney's done in years. But I want to see those kind of risks in the big screen feature length films. So here's the big question: Yeah, 
what would P.L. Travers give this film? <laughs> I think she'd disapprove, but then I think she'd disapprove of pretty much everything. Um, we gave it three stars, um, and that was me. And I think I've been accused of being harsh in the office, so make of that what you will. But three stars is a recommendation. I do recommend this. It's got a lot of good things about it. I just think it could have pushed a little bit further and been truly great. It is an interesting time. Commercially, Disney have never really been stronger, have they? Mm. Having absorbed the Marvel world into their business and Star Wars is coming. You know, they've got no issues with the balance sheet or the shareholders, but creatively, you wonder whether, you know, John Lasseter, Zama, the business, is under a little pressure now to to regain some past glories. You know, the last couple of Pixar films haven't been up to their usually vaulted standards. And, uh, you know, the Disney the Disney animation, well, what's next? Well, Record Ralph 2 is coming out at yeah. some point. That's is it? Development. Yes, they're planning Wreck-It Ralph. See, I thought Wreck-It Ralph was half of a really good movie. I thought Wreck-It Ralph, the more I think about it, and I want to watch it again, and I'm kind of in the tank because I went and visited it and interviewed everyone, but I thought, the, the more I think about it, there's actually a lot going on. Yeah. Like, towards the end, in the final act, it it's flawed horribly with the way that it gives too much emphasis on the Sugar Rush land. Yeah. Uh, but it, the actual uh, ending, I think, was emotionally very resonant, and uh, there was much more in it than you can give it credit for for a movie that should be just an arcade romp. I wish there'd been a scene where they've been in the Pac-Man, actually in the Pac-Man maze. Well, you do see very briefly when you have the uh, the anonymous bad guy, anonymous. Yeah. Um, they have their meeting inside the square where the ghosts live. Oh, is that right? And when they leave, they walk out and you go beep 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 beep, and that's where Wreck-It Ralph picks up the pair of cherries. Anyway, so to answer your question, what's coming up next in the Disney universe? Now, Pixar, we've got The Good Dinosaur. Regal Ralph 2 is in some way being in development. And Well, next year, of course, is Big Hero 6, which is Walt Disney Animation making uh, a Marvel title. And it's a kind of a crazy fictional m- metropolis, which is kind of a cross between San Francisco and Tokyo, called San Frisokyo. Which I'm extremely excited to see. It's about a young prodigy called Hiro Hamada and his robot Baymax, who uncover a criminal plot and uh, join a, a team of inexperienced crime fighters, including, and I've got to read you these names Wasabi No Ginger, Honey Lemon, Gogo Tomago, and Fred. Did you say inexperienced crime fighters? I did, yeah, inexperienced. So it's kind of like kick ass too, only without any of the, you know, horrible bits. And, and from the tiny snippet of just environment that we've seen, this one looks kind of amazing. So I think maybe what I'm saying is it's not Disney animation as a whole that's kind of getting stuck in a rut, but it's their sort of princess stories that are maybe going for a little bit of a common denominator. So maybe it's only that. Uh, but we've got, to, we've got to move on. There, there are a couple of other films like this week. We've also got Homefront, which is the new Jason Statham action film. Uh, that only got two stars, so let's cover that off reasonably quickly. It's fun. It's another Statham movie. Again, if you add an extra star, if you love Jason Statham, so I'd add another star. And <laughs> there, there is fun to be had. But uh, let me just put it to you this way. they have uh, Jason Statham takes his young American child to the south uh, of America, uh, as in the southern states, and, you know, wants to be a good old-fashioned boy, shotguns and, you know, pickup pick trucks. trucks yeah. And uh, he still speaks like Jason Statham. So that's great. It does have James Franco as the Baden. Uh, which is quite a sight to see when you see James Franco facing off against Jason Statham, a man who you'd have thought can just cock an eyebrow and Franco's hips would break. But uh, no, there seems to be some kind of, um, you know, tension between those two. Not the finest film ever made, but a much better than Parker, I would say, which uh, (laughs) I really, really was so disappointed by. Mm. Okay, so that got two stars. So uh, sadly, not a recommendation unless you're a Statham diehard you like Ali. You were so disappointed by that film. Statham was in Die Hard. What? 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 Sorry, yeah. 
Yeah, no. yeah, they're remaking the <laughs> Die Hard and Jason Statham's in it. Amazing. I drifted off for a while there and I suddenly came back with this exciting news. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Okay, a couple more. We also have the Spike Lee version of Old Boys. So this stars Josh Brolin as the man locked up without explanation for over a decade and then suddenly released. Right, so you... I'm going to presume that you guys haven't seen Old Boy for the purpose of talking about this. 2004, Jane Park released what became an instant classic, uh, which is a terrible phrase, but I think it's applicable here, uh, which involved uh, octopodes and uh, hammers and vengeance and blood and um, some perhaps unfortunate uh, relationships. Uh, this sees Josh Brolin uh, as the Old Boy character. Uh, Joe Doucet, he is a... A young, as a young man, was a drunken slob, uh, but he gets put in for no explicable reason uh, for 20 years in a hotel room-style prison where no one speaks to him. There's no windows, there is no communication, and no explanation. He is suddenly released and has to find out what's going on. Uh, there is a similar theme with Hammer that he still plays an important part, but other sections from the original film aren't in there. Speaking of Hammers, uh, a certain implement of some sort was uh, used in the editing room where Spike Lee's uh, film, which was meant to be much longer than this, it comes in currently 104 minutes. It was going to have about an hour longer than that going on here, and it was uh, chopped out quite chunkily uh, and has been kind of put out uh by uh, in the US and just let to die. Uh, it just kind of went out and was po- possibly one of the biggest flops of this year. And this year has seen RAPD and the Lone Ranger come along. So this is one of the biggest disappointments. And I feel very bad for Spike Lee. I, I guess that there wasn't the final cut control that he wanted. And uh, it, for whatever decision, executives somewhere, uh, or, or maybe I don't know, I wasn't obviously there in the editing booth, but there were problems someone thought and they, they made a decision. So, is it as good as the original? No, it's not. But that doesn't mean it's a bad film. It still works. It's still a watchable experience. But it doesn't compare, really, to uh, the the classic uh, that I've mentioned. So, yeah, you probably want me to hear... You probably want to hear me drubbing this and saying it's terrible. But the performances are all pretty good. And uh, aside from perhaps Charter Copley, who, who plays a character which doesn't feel like it fits in with the rest of them, uh, it's it's all strong. But it just doesn't quite justify its need to exist. If you're going to do something like Carrie, which is a remake of a much-loved, you know, former classic again, uh, you really need to do something. Yeah. And this is by no means an embarrassment for either Spike Lee or the, the writer of the film, Mark Protosevich. Uh, it, it is an embarrassment in that aspect, but it feels like it's just been let to die and no one's going to see it. And who's going to champion this film if it didn't do something else? Oh, there's an amazing moment where... That doesn't happen in this film. So we gave it... I think I think we'll be called generous for doing this, but we gave it three stars. Um, our reviewer sums up this way. Lee and his team have made a film that feels worth watching, but those who've seen both will spend a lot of time comparing the two, and New Boy does come up wanting. Okay, so that's three stars for Old Boy. Also, we should mention that Big Bad Wolves, which is a prisoner's-style story of torture and uncertainty, uh, got five stars from our Kim Newman. So if you are a horror expert and, you you know, you're in for something pretty intense, uh, that's a huge recommendation for that. Okay, that's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun, where we will be joined by some hobbity guests and also the toast of London, Mr Matt Berry. Until then, it's goodbye from James. Bye from Phil launch the nuclear weapons (laughs) sinister is that right hi uh, goodbye (laughs) goodbye from Ali absolute radio Uh, no bye (laughs) and it's goodbye from me I'm off for a quick hop in my invisible jet (laughs) 